Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. Minigun is based on a personal experience, and I wouldn't talk about it for seven years. I saw Thelma and Louise, and it's like a door opened. And I began to open that door and free myself from being a victim in my head. You can carry that with you for the rest of your life, really. And I've smashed that by writing this song. And I sing it every night. It gets a bit exhausting sometimes. Hey everybody, you're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts, I'm Efren Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Me and a Gun, the 11th track from Tori's first album, Little Earthquakes. 5 a.m. Friday morning, Thursday night, far from sleep, I'm still up and driving, can't go home. Obviously, so I'll just change direction Cause they'll soon know where I live And I wanna live Got a full time and some chips Hi David. Hey Eve. How's it going? It's going pretty well. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Great. I'm feeling uh I'm feeling the pressure. How about you? You're feeling the pressure of the song? The enormous responsibility of honoring this song in just the right way. It is. It certainly deserves that honor and we're in the home stretch here on the album as well. So that's added pressure. These last two tracks, we got to really knock them out of the park. Yeah, exactly. And I want to just start with a trigger warning. Obviously, we're going to be talking a lot about sexual assault and rape on this episode. So I think it's important that we state that up front. But I think everybody who's here knows that that's what we're going to be talking about. Mm -hmm. So... Let's get right into it, because we have so much to talk about on this episode. Normally our documents are like show documents, top around 15 pages, maybe 20 for a heavy song. This document is 35 pages. And of course, thank you to Shay Stymac for putting that document together. So we're going to jump right into it. This is like a doctoral thesis, for sure. Not surprisingly, yeah. Tori has talked a lot about this song, so there's a lot of material to dive into. Absolutely, and it's a pivotal song in her career, mm. without a doubt. Dare we say classic Tory song yet again? Well, they all are they off all, of this album, aren't they? Every single one. So we might as well start at the top of every episode by, you know, giving them <laughs> that designation. Another Iconic. classic Tory song. What was the first time you heard this? Do you remember the circumstances? I do remember the circumstances around the first time I heard the song. And as we've talked about many times on the show, it was a while before I let Little Earthquakes continue to play through track by track and reveal itself to me. And I remember being shocked by the starkness of, you know, this acapella song. And I think I was was 12 or 13 so I really had I was not prepared for this subject matter or even the fact that people were using song and what's kind of presented as a pop album to address this kind of experience so just based on the first few lines of the song I really thought that it was about her being involved in some sort of robbery oh really yeah or that she was like holding up a liquor store which sounds absolutely ridiculous because it is but that's how my 12 year old's mind interpreted me in a gun and a full tank and some chips like she yeah. was on some kind of a criminal joyride or something 
it speaks a lot to your naivete, you know, and it speaks a lot to like how this woman has kind of shaped our lives too, right? Like we were young, know nothings before. Because I remember listening to the album, I remember listening to the Earthquakes and sort of not being into it, right? When I found the Earthquakes, the album or the CD, I found it at this used record store called CDX in Las Cruces, and I was like just thumbing through the used CDs. It was a first used CD store in LC. And I saw it and I said, oh my God, that's that girl. And I knew her from having seen her video one time on Much Music. We had a satellite dish. And I remember seeing her video. And so I bought the CD without any hesitation. And I took it home and I didn't really get into it until I got to Mina Gun. Suddenly I felt very exposed and very vulnerable. Also a little horrified and also a little confused. I just couldn't stop listening to that song. And I just sat there dissecting the song again and again and again. And that's like kind of how my love for that album was born. Well, that's certainly, you know, a good hallmark of a powerful piece of art. You were disturbed. You were intrigued. You were drawn in. Kind of blew your world open a little bit, as Tori often does. Yeah. And I remember the very moment, too, was when she sang the line as he buttoned down his pants. When I first heard that, I remember halting, you know, like my head turned 90 degrees sharply. And I just, I was like, what is she saying? And I just, it was a lot to take in at that young age, the Mm. tender age. I had just been born in 92 when this album came I know. Out. What was that like? You were clutching a Walkman in your infant hand? Fingers were not yet dexterous. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, too, going back a couple steps, I love when you tell the story about um, how you discovered Tori's music, and you always say, that's that girl. That's that girl that I recognize. And I like that you specifically say girl, because to me it indicates that you always saw Tori as a sister of sorts. <laughs> or, a, or a peer. Whereas I, I guess, always had her on this high artistic pedestal. As a woman. <laughs> no, that's the girl from high school. That's the older girl. That's really cool. That's I wish her. I'd related to her that way. I always thought she was better than me, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> she is just like us, David. Uh-huh. <laughs> we are she, and I am she, and you are me. Well, I know that now. You know. She's every woman, and so am I. <laughs> and here we are. Familiarity from the get-go. It was meant to be. Yeah, 30 years later. <laughs> still talking about uh-huh. it. So when did it occur to you that the song might not be about sort of like a liquor store robbery or anything like in that arena? When did it occur to you what the song was actually about and how did you take that? I think at some point, you know, when I really started listening to all the songs, my focus must have been a little different. And I imagine I was sitting there with the lyric book, really kind of pouring over the words. And at that point, I imagine I was also really focused on Tori's appearances out and about doing promotions. So she was talking about the song, which sort of, you know, clarified for me, oh, okay, this is what's actually happening here. And obviously, you Mm. know, what I was responding to in Crucify was how deeply personal It felt to me, even if I wasn't connecting with everything about the song at that point in my life, but this just further clinched to me who she was as an artist and the kind of subject matter she was willing to talk about and dive into when at that point in time, most other people weren't. And that was pretty mind-blowing to me. Almost like you can write a song like this or you can create something like this. You know what I mean? Yes. I felt like I've heard acapella moments up to that point, but never like a full track on an album that you can do that. You can write about this. You can sing it this way. Like, where's the music? You were probably in for a shock if your one exposure to an acapella moment in pop music had been the breakdown from In Vogue's Never Gonna Get It. Never Gonna Get It. Yeah. But I was thinking more like, love, don't love you on their CD. I was thinking about that too, because that's like the only other acapella moment I could think of right off Mm. the top of my head. 
I instantly knew. I recall instantly knowing why it was acapella. Like, oh, she's taking the music out because she wants you to hear what she's saying. Mm. Like, she wants you to really listen to these words. I knew that. And I'll tell you, it really devastated me, that song. And I really felt like it was, in some ways, my story. And I feel like we all or a lot of us have had that experience where it's like, in some ways she's telling our story. Um, and I think that's why we, a lot of us have a personal connection to that song and mm. to her. And so I've had such a strong reaction back then that I've lost. I've lost that reaction to the song over the years. And not until last night did I have like another strong reaction to that song. So it's mm. like, I don't know how to wrestle with that or explain that. Yeah, you know, we often have this experience on the show where we revisit songs that have been in our lives for so long that we don't process them the way we used to. Not that they bounce mm -hmm. off of us, but we don't take them in every time we hear it. Yeah. So when we look at it with fresh eyes or listen to it with fresh ears, we usually come to some new discoveries about the song. And even just now, hearing you talk about the choice to make it a cappella, obviously that's, you know, obvious in the way the song presents itself. But I never really thought that much about why she made the decision and what you said was so clear to me. It's almost like in a movie when you can ratchet up the suspense even more so by dropping the music out. And certain moments yeah. in film when there's no score, the silence and the emptiness speaks way more than a piece of music would that might ultimately seem emotionally manipulative. So I think this song is mm -hmm. all the more powerful because it is just her voice. And like I said, you're focusing on what she's singing and there's no other adornment to the song. Like it's stark and naked and therefore even more confrontational than it might be otherwise. Confrontational for sure. There's nothing you can hide behind. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can like escape into mm -hmm. to distract you. Yeah. And the same holds true for her, I would imagine, when she's performing it. You know, at that point in her career, obviously she was a solo artist performing solo every night, but she even, that was the one moment where she wasn't at a keyboard instrument, where she would turn and face the audience in a white spotlight, and it was very mm -hmm. difficult to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's start the show. Let's mention our guests. Should we talk about our guests? Okay. Today on the show, we have Shannon Lambert. She is a friend and the founder of Pandora's Project, which you can find on pandies.org. She's here today to tell us her story and to talk about the founding of her website. So we have Shannon. And we also are bringing on another sh Shaggy. Shaggy has a very visceral account of Tori Amos' performance of Me and a Gun in 2007 as Pip that we want to discuss with her that was a one-off performance that had a lot of jaws wagging so we're gonna let shaggy wag on shag wag so should we get to it let's go let's dive right in okay let's start with not a cover but a remix this is a remix the shershies shershies xerxes the shershies remix of me and a gun Soon know where I live 
Mia Gun appears as the 11th track on Tori's debut album Little Earthquakes released January 13, 1992 in the UK and February 25, 1992 in the United States. It is an a cappella track with vocals by Tori Amos recorded by Ian Stanley. I have reason to believe that this song was recorded during the China sessions. And do you want to know why? Tell me why. Because we have a quote from Tori Amos herself. This is from Ur Magazine in the Netherlands on March 7th, 1992. She says, that song is based on a true story. I recorded the song in the studio in one take. The musicians behind the glass were completely speechless. So knowing that there are musicians behind the glass that are completely speechless, but this is an acapella track, and knowing her work with Ian Stanley with The Pool and China, my guess is that in the middle of recording China, she stopped and was like, can I maybe like do this one thing? Mm. And then just laid down the vocals. That's my guess. You know, sometimes we get a little hung up on the phrasing of one take. That doesn't necessarily mean that she wrote something on the spot rather than she got the performance as it appears on the record without having to do multiple takes of the song, right? She does indicate that the song was written, not that it was improvised. Right. I could see being right in the sense that sometimes a song moves in when she's not planning on recording it that day and for whatever reason, she's just in the place to do it. So they kind of have to change course from what they were planning that day. Right. Can I just say also that given what we know of Tori's recording process from Under the Pink forward, meaning she was either on location or in her own studio, it's very different from the typical kind of recording process. So it's strange to me to imagine Tori in that setting period, let alone performing Me and a Gun with kind of studio engineers behind a pane of glass watching her. She says musicians behind the pane of glass. And my thought is, yeah, we'll, we'll read quotes here in this section where she talks about writing the song in a parking lot. She wrote the song in a parking lot in England. So I believe that the song was written and I think that she got it in one take, the vocals. I think probably because you're right, every other time she's recording, she's Tori Amos, you know what I mean? But at this time in her life, she's just trying to cut together a debut album. Mm -hmm. So she She's like maybe cribbing studio time. She's like, well, we're booked here in the studio for China. So uh, let me just try to get this since we're here. And you're thinking that this came late in the game 
as far as Little Earthquakes is concerned? Yeah, we can pinpoint it down to August. She wrote it in August after seeing Thelma and Louise. August 1991. For the most part, at least on these first few albums, there's a song that slips in at the last minute, and it usually ends up being a really pivotal, important song to the album, right? Like she mentions Donut Mm -hmm. Song was the last song that they recorded, and she wasn't intending Mm -hmm. on including it, so... Well, this song appears as a single. It appears on a UK and European single that came out in October 91, released on CD, 7-inch vinyl, and 12-inch vinyl. Her first single, actually, her very first. Now, can we talk about that for a second? Because we brought this up on the show once or twice, and I always sort of question the decision to make an acapella song about sexual assault an artist's debut single. And you kind of tut tut and wag your finger at me, you know, sort of. of, Yeah, I think you did. I think you've tutted. (laughs) I don't know. I would know how to tut tut. I think you've tutted and demonstrated that you have the mind of a label executive because you're like David. Clearly, in a market like the UK, this sort of release is provocative and would get people talking. Um, Oh. That's funny because that's what I was just about to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like not knowing where you were going with this, that's what that was going to be my argument. Like, I know obviously, you, obviously, <laughs> David. Like this is a shocking enough song that it would get people talking. Yeah, but I still. Wow, I'm glad I can tut tut. <laughs> I'm I'm consistent with my tuts. You sure are. <laughs> tut it, tut it all night long. I'm consistent tut. <laughs> but you still have to sort of acknowledge that getting people talking isn't necessarily always the preferred strategy that's used when you're launching a new artist. Like you usually any look, press is good press. That's any true. Any press is tut tut. That's true, but typically you look for the most easily digestible or catchy song, right? And there would have been several other choices. Well, no, no, no. Here's why. I think that they knew what they had. They knew that she wasn't going to be a digestible, catchy artist. You know, they knew that the full Little Earthquakes album was not catchy, so they can't market her that way. I don't know. It's a very strange choice. I agree with you. It is such a strange choice. Mina Gunn, as a first single, it definitely got her attention. Do you think they were factoring in the failure of YKTR into how they chose to market this album like well we tried to package her as a pop artist and that clearly didn't work so we're gonna go as far the other direction as we possibly can possibly yeah possibly and maybe even like trying to distance her so far from that image that it was like they were maybe marketing a completely different artist Mm -hmm. that they were trying to like pretend it was a different artist Mm -hmm. entirely Either way, though, I mean, it is a harrowing first single, and it didn't even have her name on it. It just said Me and a Gun. True. On the initial release, the packaging, yeah, yeah, does not include the name Tori Amos. Mm -hmm. It just is her sitting on that chair, just Me and a Gun. And that, I mean, like, there was a very specific marketing plan, whatever you want to say, you know? Do you imagine that this got played on the radio at all? I can't imagine. I'm happy to know that we live in a world where that is possible because this song also has a video. There was a video associated with the song that was played on MTV. TV and other markets, an actual video. I'm happy to be able to say that we live in a world that that's the case, but I'm still shocked. As we are in this day and age, like, I can't imagine, like, this ever making it to radio. I don't believe thus far we've talked to anyone who is a fan because of Me and a Gun. You know, we usually like to ask people the first song that they remember hearing or what song reeled them in, and I don't think anyone has cited this song, but I would love to know if anyone remembers hearing this on the radio when it was first released. I would love to know that, too, but I think you're about to meet someone. We're about to talk to Shannon later, who I believe her first experience with Tori was through this song. Great. Asking it is given. Tut tut. This song also appears on Little Earthquakes, obviously the debut record, the Little Earthquakes VHS that came out in October 1992. It also appears on the Live in New York City VHS, the Rain concert that came out in 1997. It also appears on Tales of a Librarian in a remastered version, although it's called a reworked version, but it's just remastered. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing really to rework. No. Like she did one take. 
Um, <laughs> that was November 2003. A Piano, November 2006. We then see it again in 2007 on one Legs and Boots, or Leg and Boot. One Leg, One Boot. Chicago, Illinois as Pip, which we'll discuss ad nauseum later. Mm. We next see it on Live at Montreux, which was released in September 2008, which was a recorded concert from her Montreux Jazz Festival in 91 and 92. It appears in the 92 concert because she hadn't yet written it in 91 and little earthquakes reissue in 2015 and that's all she wrote mm. correct me if i'm wrong but wasn't there a soundtrack oh, I, will. <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubt and i just asked for it so i can't blame you <laughs> wasn't there a soundcheck performance of me and a gun as pip filmed for inclusion on the American Doll Posse tour release, which we never actually got, but I believe she did it again. They did record that performance. Is that what you're talking about? Not the actual performance in Chicago, but my memory is that we got word that in San Francisco, when they were filming the Doll Posse concerts for a DVD release, that she did a sound check as Pip and did Me in a Gun again so that they could include that. Oh, I, I've never, ever heard that. I that think that's could the very case. possibly be true. I've never heard that. All I do know is that they sent out people to record. The people, they took some handheld footage. I know that they used the footage in one of the visualettes. I think they were originally planning to use James Farron's footage because it had made like a huge splash online. Like he, he recorded it originally and posted it and it got so many hits. That happened. And I think they were going to use his but then they, I think, ultimately went with their own footage. Way to crowdsource, mm -hmm. Tori. Because some of the footage appears in one of the visualettes. There's like YouTube footage of her pit performance in a visualette? I believe so, yeah. Wow. Curtain call. Tori's a pioneer. That's kind of the equivalent of when people used to put disposable cameras on tables at weddings and make their guests be their photographers. Oh, I loved doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Get to work, people. Here's a clip from Music Box. This is a private showcase Tori did in January 1992. It's a pretty famous little video, but we're going to play a little bit from it. I had to look at what was really making me so angry. Why was I so angry? I was just so angry, ripped to shreds. I would just stand in the middle of the room sometimes and f where people were around me and have to get out because I was just ready to rip the place apart. But you know, you just keep your smile on and leave graciously because you don't want them thinking you're nutter. You're out of your head. Did you find out what you were so angry about? Finding, yeah. I talk a lot about it in this record. It was me and a gun and a man on my back and I sang holy, holy as he buttoned down his pants. I wrote that in London. That was the last one. That in China were the last ones to get on the album. And me and a gun I saw after seeing Thelma and Louise. And after I saw Thelma and Louise, it reminded me of something that happened to me, an experience that came back. And I, and I wrote it in a parking lot in London, right before a show. You know, I imagine it was cathartic to write it. I wonder if it, if it continues to be good for you to sing it. Each night that I sing it, I go into a trance and I, um, I feel really freed singing it. It's exhausting singing it. But at the same time, I can sing it.
Why don't you read this from The Guardian, November 1991? And this may be the earliest quote that we have, not necessarily about me and a gun, but about like the idea. Though she proclaims herself the president of Victims Anonymous, straightforward revenge isn't part of her methodology. You can't blame everybody. You have to change it. To work through a victim situation, it's about facing the attacker in yourself, tearing away all the layers and wondering if you could have made other decisions there. Other women who've been attacked will argue, but I have to look at all sides of it, and that's healing. So even from the beginning, it's about healing. And I think writing this song, she's talked again and again, it's about healing. And we'll see this in some quotes, is that she talks about singing the song being very freeing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there is some healing going on. and some For sure. And I think Tori has always been very clear that she's about looking inward and freeing herself from any feelings of victimhood. She always takes responsibility for everything. And in this case, that being her own feelings, I guess. But she always brings it back to self as opposed to blame or victimization or anything like that. So, yeah. From the Daily Telegraph, December 1991. And I think this is a pivotal quote in the understanding of this song. She says, who wants some sniveling female all the time? She asks rhetorically. After all, just because something happened to me and it was traumatic doesn't make it interesting. I have to get my scissors out and make sure I'm telling a story that works. It may be your own experience, but you can't be too precious. And this is really important, I think, in her entire career, because even though she's confessional and this first album is definitely a diary, it's been described multiple times, even though that is the case i still feel like to ignore that there's some artistry going on like it's not just her experience on the page right and she's never claimed that it was just her experience on the page like i lifted it and put it on the page it's not that it's there's artistry involved in crafting a song that works Mm. right it's not a literal diary it's not that it's a piece of art that she's crafted based on her experience and i think that that's important that even in december 1991 she's saying I have to get my scissors out and make sure I'm telling a story that works. You have to cut and you have to edit and you have to, you're making art here. Yeah, and we need to say that, you know, Tori was never the artist that most of the media portrayed her to be early in her career when they were just looking for a soundbite or an easy way to categorize her. You know, right. she, she goes back to that time that she was described as a new age waif shivering in a forest, which is never, yeah. which is never who she was. <laughs> and she was, I think, aware of that. I've never shivered. I never shivered. I always bring a card again. I think she was, <laughs> as a female artist, I think she was preemptively aware of that being a pitfall and that she was doing whatever she could to avoid that as an artist, which she did successfully. But nevertheless, it was easy to sort of throw her into that column. I love that she wasn't what people wanted her to be. I mm. loved it. And do you remember? So the quote that we played earlier at the top of the show, the very first quote that we played was from the Little Earthquakes VHS, but it was originally from a concert special. It was where that quote came from about opening the door. And then I began to open that door and free myself. Mm -hmm. Later in that special, there's another quote where she's talking about abortion and she gets intense in that quote. You know which quote I'm talking about? No, I'm not sure that I do. We've worked for thousands of years to have some kind of independence. And you see it slipping through your hands. Because the truth is, this is not about children. And when you strip away all the layers and you get to the seed, this is not about children. If it were, these people would go to the sewers in Colombia. They'd go to the AIDS wards. They're millions of babies. They're thrown out like trash on the streets, like cabbage. Nobody cares about the children once they're on the planet. They don't care. They walk around with guns and blow each other up. They have no food. They have nothing. Nobody cares about that. This is not about children. This is about having control over a woman's sexuality. And some women 
don't want to claim that power because they feel ashamed, they feel guilty, they're torn of love and lust. Christianity has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with that. Nothing. And it saddens me because these people, the anti-choice people, could be doing so much for the children that are on the planet. This is not about the children. And I refuse to play that game. So in that quote, what strikes me is how intense she is. You, I can just feel the reporter like, there's nothing I can pull here for my soundbite. There's nothing I can pull here. There's no easy way. I have no easy time of this. Because she's really intense and she's not what you expect her to be or want her to be. At all. And isn't it shocking that we're still having that exact conversation 30 years later? Uh, The abortion conversation? Yes. Yeah. It's really, really embarrassing as a nation, as a people, as a society. Yeah. It sure is. Yeah. And she's 100% right, you know? Like, she's speaking the truth, but talking about children being thrown out as cabbage and, like, blowing each other up with guns, like, the reporter's like, "Uh uh-oh, no. We can't use that on the VHS. Anyway, let's play this clip from the story of Pop, 1992, on the BBC. Her own experience of rape. I found that after my experience, I wouldn't talk about it. I didn't go to any kind of um, help groups. And I didn't deal with it, really, until I was here. And I saw Thelma and Louise. And that just, I sat in the theater. And I, I, I literally could not move. I was just a mop. I had a show that night, and I stopped by my house to get my ghetto blaster. It was, everything was just out of walking in a, in a dream state, and I took it with me, and I wrote it in the parking lot because um, I knew that it was time to deal with this. I'm not blaming him now, and more importantly, I'm not blaming myself. That was the biggest one. When I say blame him, I want to clarify that because you have to say at a certain point it did happen to me you know it doesn't justify his actions at all but i refuse to stay the victim in my head so there she talks about writing it before a show in a parking lot specifically at the mean fiddler in england in august of 91. i'm fascinated when we hear tori tell a story like this about thelma louise or when she talks about judy garland and pieces of art or artists that impacted her the same way that her music affects us. Because at a certain point Mm -hmm. in our lives, she has served to kind of wake us up to something. And I just love hearing her talk about when someone else has been able to give that to her. She deserves it. Yeah, she does. Why don't you read this from the New Musical Express, January 11th, 1992. After keeping it locked away for six years, writing about it was freeing. For a long time, I was scared of everything. Most of all, that I would never be able to take care of myself. Now I've learned to love myself, and I don't need anyone to tell me I'm okay. I can tell me I'm okay. I love this quote because we find eventually we come to learn that that's not true. Like, that is not entirely true. Like, it's not just you turn the page and everything's fine, right? It's not like, I've learned to love myself and I don't need anyone to tell me I'm okay. You know, it's a process. And by certainly by January 92, she's not. I love that she's gusto thrown herself into healing and like that this song has become that and to tell yourself like i'm okay i'm okay is part of the healing process right mm-hmm. i don't need anyone else to tell me that but we'll find in quotes later like it's a long process it's a lifelong process it is a lifelong process and i'm not sure anyone ever gets to the end or that one can but that's what we're always reaching for and certainly what tori is mm-hmm. always reaching for as an artist you know if i was tasked with pulling something out as a mission statement 
for Tori's work, that last sentence would be a contender for sure. I've learned to love myself and I don't need anyone to tell me I'm okay. I can tell me I'm okay. So simple, but I do think I that's sort of- I can tell me. I can, you're not gonna tell me I'm okay. You right. can't fire me, I quit. <laughs> uh, <But>. Exactly. <laughs> From Time Out London, January 22nd, 1992, she says, I suppose I do tend to call the abusers into my life, but apart from that experience that prompted me in a gun, there hasn't been any physical abuse, only emotional abuse, and some of it pretty traumatic. You know, it's funny how the abuser, the attacker, the baddie never gets addressed as closely as the victim, and I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and about the parts of me that are abusive, those parts of me I've always refused to look at. She's not one of the better heroines in the novel, you know? She's the one that nobody likes to talk about, that one. Mm. That goes to the quote that we played earlier from the New York City Showcase where she talks about being so angry all the time and be walking into a room and not knowing why she's so pissed off, you know, that she wants to tear the place apart. And this, to me, kind of goes hand in hand with that about the parts of me that are abusive, those parts of me that always I always refuse to look at, mm. you know, and how those can be triggered. That, and I think she's pointing out too that all of us are attracted to certain types of people and certain situations, usually because of some trauma from our past that we haven't resolved. Yeah, like playing out the trauma again and again. Yes. Let's play this clip from Westwood One. This is a bit of a long one. This is from February 27th, 1992. And now I'm getting to the point where I'm being able to accept the, um, the coward. That's the hard one to accept. It's hard to accept the abuser because that one, you know, we spit on. I've written me in a gun. I understand an abusive situation. I've tasted that. I know what it's like to be victimized by somebody that you don't really know, a stranger, if you will, and um, the effect that it can have on you because of what you take on, the guilt you take on. But once you work through that, then you have to really look at the incredible harsh judgment that you have on the abuser. It doesn't justify their action by any means. Nothing justifies somebody taking another person's choices away. Nothing justifies me reaching over and smacking you across the face. Nothing justifies me throwing you against the wall. It, nothing. However, I've had to look at the part of me that has so much contempt for the abuser. I've really had to look at that. And then that's called forth a part of me that could just go rip somebody's head off. I've made a choice not to abuse people. But I've found that my hatred for it is poisonous. That's not the way that I pass through it. That's not the way that I heal myself of it. Writing the song, writing the song has been incredibly healing. Is it, is that easier for you to write the song and sing it than to talk about? Yes. That? Yeah, yeah. I don't talk about the incident because I feel like I have in the way that I wanted to. Um, I also don't think about him per se. In my, it's about me now. He has his own path. But I think about the part of me. You know, you, again, I stress over and over again, because this is a bit of a delicate subject, it doesn't justify 
that kind of action, nothing that I'm going to say. But you really start thinking about what is the cause of something like that and how will it stop? How is it ever going to stop? You know, it passes from parents to child. Who grows up? It passes it to their children and it just doesn't stop until a generation rises up and says, no, before I pass it to my children, I have to look at myself. I have to be really fair. Get all of those shadows out here. Get the things in the closet. Let's open up the cupboards now. Why don't you read this from the Illinois Entertainer, March 1992. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Yes, it's based on a personal experience. I wrote it here, London, in August, after I saw Thelma and Louise, and it brought something back to me that had happened. I feel very freed by singing it. I sing it every night when I perform. That song is about releasing being the victim. At a certain point, you have to stop being the victim, because if you don't, you pull abusers into your life over and over again. Even if it's like a fellow secretary. She simulates an office breakdown. She won't put sugar in my coffee. She won't. Do you see what I mean? I'm not trying to make light of it, but I have to. I choose to look at the rape situation from all angles, and I feel I have the right to do that. So I do. It's true. It's like what you just said. You're constantly kind of playing that out if you don't deal with it. And in all the relationships that you choose and the way that you treat yourself and the way that you look at yourself, you're constantly playing out that abuse, I think. I think yeah. that's very all true. The, all the people and relationships that you draw into your life are symptomatic of that healing that you maybe haven't done yet. Mm, that's a good way to say it. Or also the people that you're drawing into your life are just kind of filling in for that past. Uh, you're lifting the cycle and you're just like, I need a new antagonist. And to some degree as well, we all accept what we think we deserve. Maybe. That's true. I'm already getting emotional in this episode, David. Mm. <laughs> it's too early to get emotional. Okay. When is it an acceptable time to get emotional? Happy hour. Sounds right. It's 5 p.m. somewhere. From Washington Post on March 22nd, 1992, she says, I don't talk about the details because I can't, but it's freeing to sing that song. I have to go into a trance to sing it. It gets exhausting singing it, but there's so much going on that nobody talks about. And I just found that out with myself after so many years of not talking. So like hiding away from it and putting it for six or seven years, like locking it up inside and not talking about her experience, finally letting it out. It's like, I can't stop talking about it. It is freeing. Like I feel so much better. I feel like I'm actually working towards being a complete person, being a, a healed person. I can't not talk about it. I think her decision to perform it every night early in her career was speaking to the fact that her music and especially this song are healing for her first and foremost. Not that she's performing it because she wants to confront the audience with something or she thinks that it's something they need to hear, but we are bearing witness to her own process of healing through the song. Yeah. And she needs to keep going back to it every night to work through that. And we're all say lucky enough to be able to participate in that in some way and to also benefit from it. Yeah, we find that with Crucify as well. I think mm. that we've kind of identified that there. And Big Wheel. And Big Wheel. Big Wheel. Well, kind of in a way, because that's a song about saying fuck you to the man, right? Yeah, it sure like is. The record company man. And like being able to sing that on stage powerfully every night. Like, mm. yeah, fuck you, record company. I've discovered that if I refer to myself as a MILF often enough, I start to believe it. You are, David. Don't you forget. <laughs> I've always seen the MILF in you, but you have to love the MILF in yourself. <laughs> no use crying over spilled MILF. <laughs> this is from Musician, May 1992. <laughs> this is from Musician Magazine, May... Ching! <laughs> Nailed one. <laughs> 
A Musician Magazine, May 1992. It was painful to go through, but it's about passing through to the other side. Sometimes writing songs is the only sense I can make out of anything. This particular issue was something I had buried for six years. While writing it, I was caught up in the trauma and the euphoria. I was finally able to cry about it. When you're walking around tripping over your intestines, you've got to do something, and writing songs is it for me. Like, that to me makes complete, complete sense. I feel like when you finally access a part of yourself that you've denied the room to breathe or the room to heal, like when you finally deal with shit, it is a euphoria. Do you think the process of writing and releasing this song marked a shift for Tori in her career as an artist, meaning she went through this experience, she put the song out into the world, and it was something that she'd buried for six years. And at that point, going forward, nothing was off the table in terms of what she was willing to discuss or address in her songwriting. You know, that's an interesting question because sometimes I believe that. And then sometimes I think that she maybe fears sharing this much again, you know? Mm. Like that this has kind of always been something that people bring up for her entire career. It's there from the beginning. It's the first single. It's the very first way that people get to know her. It's always up for discussion. Mm -hmm. Even though she's healed and moved on, it's kind of like she's always having to go back there. So sometimes I wonder if she ever regrets it. Not regret is not the right word, but if she ever wishes that she had held back a little. I wonder. I don't think the answer is yes. I don't. I think it's a much more complicated answer, but mm-hmm. I, I question it, you know? Mm. And I do think she's always walking that line between I'm an artist and a storyteller, so I need to sort of tailor what I'm putting out to be. Mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying because when you're an artist and a storyteller and you've crafted a piece of art that is reflective of your experience or inspired by your experience, but people always assume it is your experience and they question you like it is your experience and they want you to answer for the lines in the song as if they're your own personal experience. Like it creates this kind of like, how do I answer this question while reminding you that it's, it's a story? You know, that it's a piece of, that I created. It's a mm. piece of art. It's just really tricky ground to navigate, I imagine. It is, and it's difficult, too, because Tori established early on that that's who she was and who she wanted to be as an artist, and she encouraged that kind of an engagement by being so candid and open, whereas someone like a PJ Harvey will never entertain that kind of questioning. That kind of questioning or any kind of questioning. <laughs> yeah, including, can I have your autograph? Let me tell right. you, I can speak from firsthand knowledge about that one. I'm not entertaining that. Ooh. <laughs> no, I mean, I agree. Because she was so open in the beginning. It's hard to go back from I know. that. It really is. Why don't you, Los Angeles D, read from the Sacramento Bee on May 8th, 1992. I sure will, New Mexico E. Thanks. It was like I was birthing myself. It was as if I was in a tunnel and I didn't know the end. It was the first time I really allowed myself to feel things, to really feel them as I was feeling them, not cutting them off, not trying to censor them, not trying to dilute anything, make excuses. It was then finally that Amos confronted the memory of her rape two years earlier. I made a decision to stop being unconscious, and how you do that is you give yourself the keys to the unconscious room, and you walk in and you go, what's up? And all the little monsters come out with their party hats. I love that quote. Although I think that six years was too long for the person who wrote that article. Let's just make it two Mm. years. Let's rewrite the story. Mm. 
This is from The Village View, May 8th, 1992. She says, you end up in a situation that is nothing suggesting sex. You think nothing. And all of a sudden you have a weapon at you and that's it, recalls Amos, who notes that society still tends to blame the victim in a rape case. You start defending yourself and who you are when you've been raped. That hasn't changed. Amos opted not to go to trial, but she isn't afraid of stripping herself naked in front of an audience. Me and a Gun is all the braver because of its lack of instrumentation. Why did she choose to do the song a cappella? She says, I wrote it that way. The song came to her after she saw Thelma and Louise. She sat in her car and recorded Me and a Gun on a ghetto blaster, working it out in the course of a few hours. We have to say, okay, if I can open the cupboards, so there are spiders in there. You've got to open the cupboards or the spider's going to get so big, it's going to be tearing the cupboard down and this claw is going to be wrapped around your neck. I love the way that Tori was and always has been able to address difficult subject matter while maintaining a sense of humor about it. Yeah. And I think she always has that perspective about herself. Mm -hmm. Well said. Read this from LA Times, May 11th, 1992. My way is for you to taste something. I want you to smell it and I want you to taste it and I want you to feel it crawling down your leg and I want you to be there. I want you to feel those things. I wanted people to be in that car with her. That's a great quote. I think too notable is that she says, I wanted people to be in that car with her, mm-hmm. not with me. You know, that that mm-hmm. is a character in the song. Yes. There is a narrative going on. Mm-hmm. And I love hearing Tori talk about when she endeavors to create a moment and to make the listener very present in the song and how she does that even technically. I'm thinking of something like Beauty Queen where she talks about the click and she so evocatively, you know, describes like the bathroom and the crud between the tiles and how she wants you to feel that. I love that. Yeah, that's a good point. Read this from Vogue, June 1992. When you take another person's choices away and you inflict yours on them, you've broken divine law. That's great. That's Mm. true. We're going to play this from The Steve Wright Show, June 16th, 1992. I know that my thoughts have been changed by something that I've heard. Yeah, that's I mean, good. think of John Lennon saying, imagine mm. Thelma and Louise. A movie changed my whole life. Really? Because I dealt with something that happened to me, which I wrote me and a gun about. Yeah. Which I'm hoping is changing some people's lives, feeling that they're victims. Mm of a rape or to stop feeling like they have to be a victim for the rest of their life. We are jamming through these quotes, David, but we are not even a quarter of the way down. Mm, I wasn't going to look. I'm just, I'm here for this journey. Okay, good. This is from Scene in Cleveland, Ohio, July, August 92. It also seems that Amos will crack down harder on the victim than the victimizer. She says, hmm, harder on the victim? Yeah, I guess I do, don't I? It's hard to say why. That doesn't mean that one is better than the other. Right now, I'm not talking about the me and a gun situation because right now I'm talking about consenting people and me and a gun was not about consenting people. I'm not surprised that everybody keys in on that song because you don't write something like this, come to terms with it and put it out there and not know what you're putting out. I'm aware what that song is because I lived it. I'm also aware that there are many people that have experienced something like this in some way that haven't been able to talk about it, so this is hard. I can't really talk about it and not talk about it totally, yet I have to keep my privacy. I'm singing this every night, and with that, I feel I'm saying enough. It is based on a personal experience, and I've been really trying to work through it so I don't stay a victim in my head. It kind of irritates me, too, how people always seem to want more. Like, this is such a naked song. This is such an honest, horrifying account. I would never in a million years dream to question anybody who wrote something of this magnitude. Like, tell me the reason. Tell me the details. You know? I feel like that's so gross. 
It is gross, but you know, to some degree, obviously that's our culture. We love a tragedy and to be able to kind of observe it. And there's a real hunger for it in a disturbing way, I think. I mean, it's all about salaciousness too, you know? Mm. You wanna read from Glamour, August 92? I was kidnapped and sexually violated. You feel like your boundaries have been crossed to such an extent that there is no law anymore, that there's no God. You feel like the mother in you will do anything to protect the child in you from being shredded before your eyes. You're thinking, I gotta get out alive, I gotta get out alive. With me and a gun, I hope attackers as well as victims are listening, as well as judges and lawyers. I want you to taste it in the back of your mouth, what it was like to be in the car with the pervert. So in that way, I guess we could say me and a gun was intentionally confrontational in every regard, both for attackers and for survivors who are processing the trauma. She's speaking to both. That kind of kicks off into this other quote. Will you read this quote from the Buffalo News, October 18th, 1992? The Buffalo News asks, why sing about the experience of rape? Why? And Tori says, the reason I'm doing it is because I think musicians have a responsibility. The singers, painters, poets, and the arts have a responsibility to be the conscience of the masses. We're mirrors, and I think we've had things covering our mirrors up. We forgot what our little job is, to speak the truth, whatever it is. We've been afraid of doing that because we've been kicked in the face so much. You see, artists want to be loved. We have to stop that. We have to love ourselves, which is the hardest thing to do. You do get drained doing something like this, but there's also exhilaration. The pendulum swings both ways because you can pretend you're not telling your secrets, but you know you are telling your secrets. You're spilling the beans, but you just have to hope there will be more beans and you won't go hungry because you give so much away. But you're also receiving while you're giving, especially at the shows. The audience gives me so much, it becomes a reciprocal thing. It opened the door for me to deal with my own experience. It didn't cross my mind that the song would get so much attention. I knew if people listened to it, they couldn't run from that song. I didn't know I would still be talking about it a year later, and I didn't know I'd be reliving it. I knew what it was, but you cannot know what it is. Do you recall back in 1996, during those radio shows at the beginning of the year or at the end of 95, where she was promoting Pele, and someone asked, like, what the experience is going to be like on stage for her? to perform these songs and she's like I don't know if I'll be reliving them or not I just there's no way to know that I do remember that here we are one year out from writing it she wrote it in August 91 this is October 92 and she's saying I didn't know that people would be still talking about this song a year later mm. and like to be inundated with questions for a year about your experience and the song and like all of you know which is traumatic for you and obviously you're trying to heal from it and you're singing it every night to kind of do that and also I love that she says to tell the truth because that's what she's supposed to do as a musician as an artist that's what the artists are supposed mm. to do is to tell the truth the reason I wanted to read that there because it goes back to the quote where she says I hope attackers and victims are listening and judges as well as lawyers because it's the truth right mm. like it's her truth so it's just interesting to me to note that a year out from this, she's already saying like, wow, this is a lot, kind of. And then here we are still like 29 years after that. Still, she's questioned about it. And she's acknowledging, too, that it's a multi-step process, meaning as an artist, there's your creative process and your experience of making a piece of art. And then there's when you release it into the world as it's intended to be and experienced by people and it becomes a conversation and they have their experience of it and impressions of it. And that just comes back to you. And therefore, the piece of art might change and take on different meaning mm -hmm. after a while. So I think she's always been pretty mm -hmm. 
pretty transparent about that and that she continues to learn things not only from the songs but from other people's experiences of the songs well i wonder if this is the song that caused her to have that point of view where the songs go on and live their own lives because Mm. up until this point you know she doesn't have much of a career by way of fans being obsessed with her songs or having their own experiences with her songs she's got yktr and that's basically it until this experience i think maybe this whole cycle is what made her realize like oh yeah people have their own relationships with these things that's beyond her Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna get out of the way a little bit yeah yeah this is from details magazine november 1992 this is our last 1992 quote thank goodness have you had any second thoughts about writing any of your lyrics like for instance me and a gun a vivid song about rape well when i wrote it i didn't know how many women would respond One out of every four women who get backstage say that they have had a similar experience and that they haven't spoken about it. When I put it out, I knew what it was. I didn't know that I was going to have to keep talking about rape. It would be nice to not have to talk about it because I would like to move on, but it stays with me all the time. That's interesting. I can only imagine. I can only imagine what she has uh, heard. You know, the stories that she's heard. It's got to be a lot of like, um, when you come to Tori shows, when you go to a meet and greet now, 2017, you're struck by how present she is, right? Like Mm. she's there, she's listening and she's talked. I remember this one quote where she talked about like, you have to be a neutral space. You have like, people are going to tell you things. People are going to need and want things from you. You have to be that neutral space where it's like, you're there for what they need. I think this has to be like something she's cultivated because of this experience of like everybody coming and laying this at her feet. You know, Mm. it probably really affected her in the beginning. It's got to be a lot of emotional weight for people to just be telling you traumatic stories all the time, right? Absolutely. And not only that, but I'm sure she's also referencing the idea that, you know, when she's doing album promotion or being interviewed, this is always going to come up. And she keeps having to revisit it or talk about it over and over and over again, which she wasn't necessarily prepared mm-hmm. for or thinking of ahead of time when she decided to put the song out into the world. So, And it just is, uh, it's really interesting to go from not talking about it for so long to really that's all people want to talk about Mm -hmm. it's got to be a strange shift and let me know what you think about this because what i responded to in tori's music wasn't necessarily this specific piece and this narrative about being a survivor of assault i never really understood why people felt the need to keep going back to this over and over and over again and that she kind of became known as tori amos so yeah the woman with the song about rape and i never got that because to me she's always been so much more obviously she's so much more but i think what is really striking as someone who was very affected by the song is her strength of talking about it mm-hmm. and you're kind of drawn to her like i remember watching that video the mina gun video which is just basically like one long shot performance of her singing the song i remember just thinking like the defiance on her face kind of and like also you can see that she's going back to a place but she's being strong and like i don't know there's something that is so attractive like i'm drawn to that i'm drawn to her strength and Mm. like i can i can see why people want to keep talking about it and want to mine it for themselves if she can do it then maybe i can do it or maybe like Mm. she has the formula Mm. for the strength So that's at least my experience with why I was so enthralled by the song. Because when I finally got to this place on the Quakes and I like opened myself to the song, like this was my go-to track for a very long time. Mm. And I think with a lot of people who would call this their go-to track over time, it is a song that we have, as the fans, I think have put away. You know, we've been able to like, okay, we don't listen to it so much anymore and we avoid it, you know, because of the weight. But imagine not ever being able to be able to put it away. And she also has stopped performing it 
as a staple mm-hmm. for a period of time on those first three tours she performed it every single night every single show and you remember a quote that's not in our document but what was that quote yeah she's talking about i think it was during the under the pink tour she's talking about performing the song every night and her decision to do that and she states that she is going to continue to perform that song at every concert for the rest of her career and we know that that turned out to not be true, that she ended up rethinking that for whatever reason. What do you think about that? You know, I think that by 94, she's realized probably how healing that song can be, not just for herself, but for other people and how people need to hear that. And maybe that it's a moment of unity in the show. And it, it kind of holds that space that I can imagine that she would. But eventually, as an artist, she wanted to grow. She brought in a band. Mm -hmm. And, like, it doesn't really fit with the band show. Like, it would not fit with the vibe. Like, I can understand why she eventually would want to put it away, too. You know? It's a hard place to go back to if if you're creating a completely different vibe where you're rocking out for, like, most of the show and then to, like, have to be thrust back down there. Absolutely. She did perform it a couple times on Plugged, but you're absolutely right. It was rare, and it was when it really needed to come out, I guess, when she made that uh, de- as determination. As by always, right? I believe right? so. I believe it was always yeah. by request the handful of times she did it. Absolutely. And I think, too, you know, at that point, she had performed it so many times and personally worked through whatever she needed to with the song that she no longer felt that it was necessary to perform it every night that it had sort of accomplished what she needed it to and that there was no need to keep going back to that place right for herself but the great thing is is that when people do request it and they need it she's still there for them to play Mm. it Mm-hmm. You know, she, I, I've never heard of anyone requesting the song and not getting the song. Honestly, never heard of anyone requesting the song since 2011, which was the last time she played it. I don't know of anyone requesting the song since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still feel like if someone did, she would. It's one of those sacred pacts is that if someone needs it, she will play it. And it did become a set staple again on the Strange Little Tour, which made Mm -hmm. sense because it was a solo tour but also because so much of that material was addressing violence about women that Mm -hmm. i think that song fit well alongside a 97 bonnie and clyde and i was reminded of 97 bonnie and clyde with the quote you read earlier about her writing the song in the car but also wanting the audience to feel like they were in the car with her during that experience that's also how she's described the process around that eminem cover so this brings up a good topic of that violence returning to her work again and again the gun motif like here we have it in her very first single we see the gun again on the cover of boys for pele and she's consciously holding the gun because of the me and a gun experience Mm. you know and just seeing and then we get into bonnie and clyde and just seeing that violence just the topics just the motif of her music Mm. like things that she's that she writes about and hearing you say that is interesting to me because tori has often expressed a desire to explore her own capacity for violence and it seems like if we kind of chart it throughout her career she's continuing to work through that and getting more accepting of that and it seems like what she really is wanting to do is sort of address a need to retaliate against her attacker but she's having trouble getting to that point. So it starts with something like The Waitress and it continues Mm -hmm. to evolve through Little Amsterdam, like we'll talk about, all the way through to Smokey Joe. We could even call Smokey Joe part of like the rape revenge subgenre of film where she's she's playing out this fantasy of taking out the attacker, so. She says in the Denau Courier on June 6, 1994, which is a German newspaper, I think, she says, if I'd been armed at that time, I would have killed that guy outright. Mm -hmm. Now I'm glad I wasn't armed. So I think you're spot on. I think she's playing that out again and again. 
Yeah. Um, so let's go into Really Deep Thoughts fanzine, issue two, winter 1993. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about Little Earthquakes. Does it bother you that people, critics, have misread your lyrics to mean that you hate men? I don't hate men. I give equal time in my hate. It's acts of people that I hate. Whether they be men or women, it's their behavior that I hate. I don't hate men. I did go through a phase of hating men after the Me and a Gun experience that the song is based on. I've tried to work through that, and Eric is a big reason that I worked through it. Eric really demanded that I understand the difference between men. That's like saying all Middle Eastern people are vicious. They're not. I have very loving friends from Iran. Stereotyping makes me no better than the KKK. But understand that when a person is attacked, violated by whomever, they're going to generalize. That's the only way to survive in the beginning. Then you have to work through and separate that this is one person's behavior towards you. I don't forgive him. It's not my job to forgive him. I forgive myself for letting it destroy me for a while, but I don't forgive him. Do you feel empowered when you sing Me in a Gun? It seems like you take back the power every time you perform it. Yes, and I needed to because I had none before I started singing it. I gave everything away after that experience, as far as my support for myself. But me and a gun gave me back my ability to have sex again and not feel like I'm soiled for the rest of my life or that I'm scarred. That's great. I mean, it's important. And I love that she talks about Eric and how he helped her work through it, you know? Mm. What a baller move, right? Like being willing to confront something like that with your partner. Yeah. Not being afraid of it, not running from it. And Tori, independent of this experience, has acknowledged that she's always had a very complex relationship with her sexuality because primarily of her religious upbringing and kind of the guilt that she had around it. So that's challenging enough. But then when you throw in an experience like this, there's a lot for one to work through. From Upside Down Fanzine, issue three, winter 1984, she says, this is a free will planet, meaning chaos can happen, things happen. Maybe you choose to walk down the wrong street. The choices that you do have, that is, I am alive and I choose to live my life in bitterness, or I can try to understand that this man was in a lot of pain. This does not justify his actions one millimeter. What it does is it makes me understand that I took on his hatred. He hated because he was in such pain, and I can either try to release that pain that I took on, understand what I took on, and love myself through the situation. I don't forgive him. It is not about forgiveness. He will pull to him what he pulls to him by his actions because there is responsibility attached to actions. However, I do understand him. That helps me. By understanding him, I can heal. I can say, I took this side. I don't choose to take it on anymore and let this pus and poison come out. Well, there is a way to do that and I am doing it. It is by spending time every day, whether it is going into some kind of meditation or whatever I need to do that day. I am the real believer in looking at your pain and taking it out shopping, which basically Mm. means like not shying away from it right like if you're in pain you're in pain and you're gonna do Mm -hmm. it and i think that's so powerful because it also is a reminder that no matter what has happened to you or what happens to you you can't be and aren't responsible for anything other than your own healing and how you respond to it all you can control is the way you respond right all right david why don't you read this from women sex and rock and roll in their own words those are three of my favorite things or my three favorite things actually (laughs) Tori says, my attack was very involved. Everybody's is very involved. I'm still having to get over what my role in it was and deal with my hatred towards my attacker and towards myself because I took on his hatred of me. He hated women and I just took on that hatred. The hardest thing for me to get over is that I really thought it was over. He'd said how he was going to murder me and I really thought that was it. And then there's the fear and degradation of it all. Afterwards, I started to think, well, it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another to really put life back into life again, to get those pictures out of my mind when I'm intimate with a man. I'm just having to discipline myself and say, well, hey, this is not the same thing, period, period. And it takes so much will because if you let your mind dwell on how you feel, it can be very addictive. 
I think I have at times, and I don't want that anymore. Now I realize I do have a choice with my sexual role, and sexuality has so much more to do with things other than penises and vaginas. It has to do with my connection to the universe and the earth and my whole being. And if I want to share that with another human being, then I can. But my sexuality doesn't stem from needing somebody else to give that to me. I have to give it to myself. Once I start to do that, then that violent attack stops being the thing that's taking everything away from me. So I'm going to work through it. Abuse is abuse, and when you're terrorized, you're terrorized. And sometimes you cut out parts of yourself to survive. I tried to cut out parts of myself before he did, and I didn't claim them back. It's like as a way to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And Tori always goes back to the idea of compartmentalization in her work mm -hmm. as well, and always trying to kind yeah, of huge un theme. Un unify or marry the parts of herself. Gotta marry those Marys, girl. Marry the Marys. From Us Magazine, February 1994, her haunting first-person account of being raped, Mina Gunn, sung a cappella, hit fans on a most visceral level. The reward for cutting herself wide open was an audience that identified closely, perhaps too closely, with her harrowing episode. On tour, her post-show backstage routine was less about cracking open a beer than listening to fans tearfully relate their own stories of sexual abuse. Quote, there was such a freedom in dealing with it, says Amos, but after that big outburst, everybody goes home. That big initial realization has come out, but now the work comes. That's what Under the Pink is about, she continues, healing and working through the violence and loss and finding the things that I'm made up of. I have other things in my life than just this experience. Yeah, I wish more attention was paid to the healing aspect of this narrative and that she continues to follow the thread throughout the rest of her work. But kind of like we talked about, people always want to go back to that kind of more provocative idea of the incident itself. Whereas with something like Baker Baker, she's really talking about kind of the aftermath in a way that I think is so important to be part of the discussion as well. And how she continued to heal through her relationships or where it made relationships challenging because she hadn't healed from this. But right. You know, I guess that's not as interesting of a conversation to most people. Why don't you read this from Hot Press, February 23rd, 1994. This is an interview with Joe Jackson, hmm. who we all know as the original artist from Real Men. I'll never talk about it at this level again, but let me ask you, why have I survived that kind of night when other women didn't? She says, how am I alive to tell you this tale when he was ready to slice me up? In the song, I say it was me and a gun, but it wasn't a gun. It was a knife he had. And the idea was to take me to his friends and cut me up, and he kept telling me that for hours. And if he hadn't needed more drugs, it would have been just one more news report where you see the parents grieving for their daughter. And I was singing hymns, as I say in the song, because he told me to. I sang to stay alive. Yet I survived that torture, which left me urinating all over myself and left me paralyzed for years. That's what that night was all about. Mutilation, more than violation through sex. I really do feel as though I was psychologically mutilated that night. And that now I'm trying to put the pieces back together. Through love, not hatred. And through my music. My strength has been to open again to life. And my victory is the fact that despite it all, I kept alive my vulnerability. I mean, I love that quote because she's being very candid. But I feel like she shouldn't have to be that candid. You know, and I feel like by 94, she's still feeling maybe that people won't stop asking her about this. Mm -hmm. That's where it, pr it prompts like, I'm never going to discuss it at this level again. This is it. That may be a piece of it, but I think we've had a handful of similar moments to this throughout Tori's career where she just feels very comfortable with whoever is conducting the interview or for whatever reason yeah, she, right. she's right. in a place that day where she wants to address it or it kind of mm -hmm. comes out unexpectedly not that she feels obligated or like i'm no, gonna, right. I'm, I'm gonna nip this in the bud by making a final statement about it sometimes it just seems like she's wanting to have that conversation yeah she probably really liked joe jackson let's read this from mojo uk march 1994 
I'll be Mojo. Okay, hey Mojo. Hey Moj. I put the Mo in Mojo. Was me and a gun based on a personal experience? Yes. You were raped? More than that. Yes, I was, but I was also held hostage for hours. And beyond the sexual violation, beyond the rape itself, it was feeling such hatred and believing that I was going to be cut up and never live. When you feel that you're going to be tortured and mutilated and all the hate that this guy has on women, his whole life is being directed at you. It's more than you ever knew how to cope with. I'm still just being able to cope with that. And I think that I'm doing a pretty good job now. A lot of my songs are based around working through that, the victim energy and working through that Christian energy that also carried the heavy victim thing too. Baker Baker, for example, that's a dear song to me because it's where I'm finally able to admit that I've been the one that's been emotionally unavailable for intimate relationships with men, and yet I have a lot of freedom in admitting it. And to be able to admit that to the man in my life has been a huge step because now we're getting somewhere. Mm. Again, I so object to when Tori as portrayed as a man-hater or a victim or, you know, worst of all, that she's somehow whiny. Because I think from the mm-hmm. jump, she has always taken responsibility for her own feelings and the role that she's played in something, for better or worse. I don't think she's ever really shied away from that. So get it together, media. From WHFS Press, Spring 94, she says, After I wrote Me and a Gun, I had to start waking up every morning going, Okay, I've acknowledged it. Now how am I going to start healing this? I can't want to keep murdering. I can't want to keep getting him back. I can't keep equating violence and sex. I can't unless I don't ever want passion or joy in my life again. And I want those things in my life. I have somebody to help me work through it. A man who's very understanding and doesn't allow me to lie and get away with stuff. It's like, no, we're going to keep the lights on and we're going to deal with this. And I love you. What is my name? Say my name. I'm not sure she's ever said anything more personal and revealing than this. And she's said this a few times, too. She's talked about when he's fucking her, making her look at him in the eye. And, like, it's always made me a little uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) She actually does use the F word, by the way. She does. It's interesting that we can be so open to Tori sharing her experience in Me and a Gun, but I'm still, still like, clutching my pearls when she talks about the sex. Yeah. You know I'm a prude. (laughs) I can barely get through you saying that with a straight face. But it's more the idea of that's such an intimate thing between a couple that it's kind of mind blowing that she's sharing that with other people. Right. Maybe Mark learned from that. He's like, listen, lady, we're going to talk about this up front. Never talk about me with anybody (laughs) because I saw what happened to Eric. He brings one of our show notes documents, throws it on the desk, highlight. We're not talking about this. We're not talking about that. Yes. And then he just circles calves in red. This is the one thing you can always go back to, but that's it. Right. You may discuss cars and possibly guitars. Mm, And maybe that one time we made fondue on the stove. (laughs) Anything beyond that? No, you better fond don't. This is from World Cafe, March 18th, 1994. Roll it, Oliver. Things on the first record you don't talk about? We didn't talk about me and a gun too much because we never did. And later we have had to deal with it. Me and a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, Would you have rather had better acceptance of these songs? Well, me and the gun has become much more accepted. It's because of what happened to me and yeah. not communicating with my parents until very late in the day, until way after the record was out, way after press was out, and there was confusing things. and then I had to get clear and come forth. And here's something from Live in Montreal, 1994. My concept of Barbados is more than a place. It's a thing that, like, uh, it was, um, it was about my force. It was about survival. So if I go there, I'm, I'm afraid that it could never be what, 
But in my head, I dreamed it would be, it's not about a place, it's about a consciousness. It's where, um, it's where uh, I put all my uh, will that night. So I can't, I can't go there. From Hitkrant, March 94, she says, I started making little earthquakes with a bag full of memories and experience I had to get rid of. A lot of people have said to me about that record, I know precisely what you mean. I understand exactly how you feel. But it wasn't over with that. Because of the success, I lived in a fit, which I emerged from after half a year. I realized then that I have even more to tell. Was Tori really in a fame fit? Maybe that it was difficult for her? Like, maybe there was just, like, a lot going on, maybe? Yeah, she was acclimating to being a public figure and to having the commercial success she's always sought, I guess. So I don't know if that means maybe her attention was drawn away from continuing to heal and work through her own material as an artist, and she actually didn't know what was going on beneath the surface because she was dealing with kind of, let's say, the logistics of her career. And then when she was back to, you know, kind of going to the creative cocoon, she was like, oh, wait, there's a lot more here. Why don't you read this from The Hour, April 26, 1994. Once you walk through the door, it's a case of how do I wake up tomorrow and start living my life without seeing this guy's face in my head every day, without feeling that if I'm passionate with a man, I start to get sick because I associate it with this. I have to somehow find the tools to get in there and realize that I have a choice on whether I want to be a victim for the rest of my life. My feelings change daily about it. Some days I feel completely healed from this, and some days I see myself cowering or getting ridiculously violent. It's one way or the other. But I can talk about it now with a bit of separation because I've done so much work on it. What I took out of the experience was hatred for my because this man hated women so much I took on his hatred and more than anything he was about murder this guy wanted to literally cut me to pieces above anything that happened that has been the one thing that I've had to work through and I've kind of associated it with sex and sexuality although it's so beyond that it's about trying to change someone's feeling about themselves about cutting out a part of their soul on the one hand I curl up into this little wasted thing and say okay I am terrible then I went the other way which is I'm a warrior woman of life and I can slaughter anything I couldn't find the balance. The truth is, I've never felt this kind of hatred before, and hatred is a very hard thing to work through your soul. You know, that's something that's usually part of the discussion when it comes to sexual assault, that it's not really about that. It's an act of violence directed at you. Mm -hmm. It's not about the Mm -hmm. act of sex itself. It's about control and power. It's definitely about power, right? And I wanted to say, too, in this quote, at the top of that interview, she says, I wake up tomorrow and start living my life without seeing this guy's face in my head every day. That brings to mind for me Peeping Tommy, which we'd also include as part of the life cycle of Me and a Gun and how she continued to explore it in other songs. Mm-hmm. And that's actually mm-hmm. true because it was recorded during Under the Pink, right? And she just decided to right. hold back. For whatever reason. And I didn't even remember writing it. You know, there's a quote where she says that, when Mark was like, I found Peeping Tommy. She's like, what are you talking about? Mm. <laughs> I have no idea what that is. It's like a samurai there too. Right. What samurai? But if we're going to talk life cycle of the song or sort of life cycle of the story of Me and a Gun, we can't really do that without also acknowledging Flicker, which I think is told from an older perspective of someone who has been through the assault, has survived, and is passing the wisdom on to the next generation of survivors as well. Rest in peace, uh, Audrey and Daisy. Mm-hmm. This is from Vox, May 1994. She says, it's not something where you just go, well, get over it, or believe in love and peace, my child, and it'll all be over. Well, fuck you. That isn't the answer. It's a great thought, okay? But you can go and stick the crystals up your butt and let's get on with it. 
I'm all for love and peace, but that's not the side I work on. I work on the part before you get into the kitchen, right? Before you make a blueberry pie, sit down and drink an herbal tea and watch the sunset. First of all, you've got to pass me in the basement with the rats. For a long time after the attack, Tori avoided, quote, any man who looked like him. If somebody would talk about it or worse, joke about it, I would be ready to kill. That's not healing. It was a very long time after that before I was with anyone again, and it has never been the same as it was before. This is from the Derek McGinty show. Do you want to be Derek? Or do you want to be Tori? I'll be Derek. Hi, Derek. How are you? Very well, thank you. Are you tired of answering questions about me and a gun? Just quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the same time, um, it's gotten easier to answer the questions. When I first started answering the questions a couple years ago, sometimes I wouldn't know what to say or how to say it because you live with it every day. So it gets to be... You know, can we just talk about anything but this? However, when I put it on the record, there was a part of me that knew that if I was going to put it on, you either talk about it or you don't talk about it at all. So I made a commitment to talk about it because I think it's that important. The willingness to be so personal in what you write, like a song like that, there's a man on my back. That's a scary, scary lyric. Was it ever frightening to you to open up that much? When I first wrote it and sang it, um, hardly anybody was coming to see me at that point. So I was in London at that time. And you don't think about, you don't, know what it's like um, having people chase you down the street until they do you don't think about that happening to you you're just singing your song and you say well this is very close to me and i'm okay about putting this on disc so we put it down and as things started my music started to get heard then i started to have to make the choice whether i was going to answer questions and i chose to talk about it at first what it's like being a victim and as the years have progressed it's now more about healing talking about the healing process you said that you wrote this song after seeing Thelma and Louise. Uh, yeah, the movie. I had put aside my experience for years. I think a lot of women that are raped won't talk about it just because you really don't want someone to tell you how you feel. Or, you know, there is a humiliating helplessness. And I made the choice to just go out and be this warrior woman. So I just wouldn't discuss it, talk about it, think about it. And slowly things started breaking down in my life. You don't handle something by not dealing with it ever. And when I saw Thelma and Louise, um, it was the final straw, really, of me having to come to terms with it. And I wrote me in a gun that evening and performed it that night. Wow. You had the music and the lyrics in one day? Right, on the tube station. It's as though something sort of cracked open in your head after you saw that movie. Right? Yeah, the interesting thing to me, a couple of things. First, the theme of that song, you say it's now turning more to healing. But I still got that feeling of, you know, wanting to survive the situation so that you could heal through the song. Well, me and a gun is all about staying alive. And that's where I was at the time. And now, I mean, I sing it at every concert. It's my commitment to sing it at every show. If I have to sing two songs, it would probably be one of them. Unless it's inappropriate because it's a birthday or something. But I mean... If it's usually a concert setting, I'll be singing it. Just because I found so many people, not just women either, but men, that they'll come backstage afterwards, and one out of three will have had some kind of experience where they were violated. And I believe that you can work through this victim vibe, you know, the idea that, well, I'm ruined forever, because there's so many things that come across your mind. Not being able to be intimate with men is something that a lot of women have to deal with. They may want to be, but you associate intimacy with violence, and you just can't. Your body has a memory. You didn't let that experience rob you of your overt sexuality. For a long time, I'm working through it. I have the help of an incredible male partner who's really helping me. Have you ever had that backstage experience you talked about with people coming back and talking to you? Has someone who was a perpetrator ever come up to you and said, Interesting. No, no. I wonder what that would be like. But you know they're there. Yeah. And again, most perpetrators have been victims, a lot of them at some point. Good point. Good point. Talk about your connection with the D.C. Rape Crisis Center and how that all came about. 
Um, they had heard my work and they were aware of how it was opening things up, especially in a generation that for the most part, people haven't been able to get to because it's hard for a lot of people to get to 19 year old women. You know, they're not just going to sit down and open up, you know. So um, the exciting thing about this relationship is that the DC Rape Crisis Center is helping to put in motion an 800 number. We're trying to do that with the help of Time Warner Atlantic Records. What would the 800 number do? So if you're in um, Purdue, Indiana, or if you're in Albuquerque, you can call anytime without it being seen on your phone bill because for a lot of these people, it's within the home. Mother, father, stepfather, stepmother, uncle, whatever, brother, whatever. And these kids, boys or girls, can call at any time. It's not traced and they don't pay for it. And they will get connected with somebody that's closest to their area. And if they want to try and get in and see them, they can. But it's about professionals that can talk to them, not just somebody picking up the phone that can read, you know, answers. One to ten, you can answer. It's about somebody that can talk through and give a kid choices. Not just a kid, a grown person, whoever is calling. And we're getting help from so many different people right now that this may take time to put the 800 number into effect. Until then, I'm having numbers printed at every concert of where you can call, like the DC Rape Crisis Center, or there's a Philly Crisis Center, wherever you are in your area, at least you can call until we get the 800 number going. And then there's a call from a caller, Joan. I really just wanted to say that I appreciate your music and I enjoy it. The sincerity in it and the fact that it's not as, um, you're not after that commercialization. I love the analogy to the painting, you know, you really present what you feel. And I also wanted to ask you if you thought that being able to deal with your experience in somewhat of a public forum was being the warrior, as you said, made it easier at some level. I've had a similar experience in, I don't know, having a cause might make it easier to grasp and run with it. Yeah, actually, I hadn't thought about that, Joan, like that. But I think you're right. Um, in as much that when you're talking to strangers, there is a kind of safeness. But when you talk to people that you know very well who know you before and who sometimes look at you with pity or they're not as objective, then you feel much more exposed than when I'm talking to strangers. So I've always felt safer with strangers than with people I know. I've had a hard time talking about it with my family or anyone that I know. Mm. So that's a really interesting pre-reign tidbit. Maybe that's also another way of, you know, how she said in the past she writes music because she doesn't know how to say it any other way. It's easier to address something in a song or to talk about something with people who don't know you than it is to kind of have mm. a very naked conversation. For sure. But I'm also talking about how she was working with the DC Crisis Center, the DC Rape Crisis Center prior to and looking to get together an 800 number. Mm. So this is kind of a little peek into that time. Also, can you imagine having a birthday party, hiring Tori to play your birthday party, and one of the songs she sings is Me and a Gun? Me and a Gun, yeah. And the other is Happy Birthday, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> happy Birthday, Encore, Me and a Gun. Right. <laughs> like, well, I guess the party's over. From the Washington Post, June 20th, 1994. It was Amos's courage in openly addressing her own rape in the acapella song Mina Gunn, also from 91's Little Earthquakes, that earlier this month earned her the 94 Visionary Award from the DC Rape Crisis Center. The center is helping Amos establish a national rape crisis hotline, which she hopes will be in place by the fall. The idea for it came from the hundreds of letters Amos has received in response to Mina Gunn. Writing the song and continuing to perform it has allowed Amos to move past the violence violence, oppression, and guilt of the experience, but she acknowledges... There were times when I couldn't really talk about it. It was humiliating to be sexually dysfunctional when you were a passionate woman on stage. I don't have any effects from why can't Tori read. I don't have to deal with that. I can giggle. With the rape experience, you have to deal with things every day of your life. There's just stuff that comes up all the time that you have to work through. In the last two years, Amos has been able to rekindle trust and passion through her relationship with musician Eric Ross, who co-produced Under the Pink. 
Eric is being very tenacious and not letting me withdraw into myself. In a recent British interview, Amos even threatened to throw away her birth control pills somewhere along her current 110-city American tour. A lot of women come back to me after the show and say, I don't know how to be intimate with a man now. I want to, but at the last minute I go into trauma shock. How do you get over being a ruined woman? In quotes. Well, there are ways, and I'm learning those ways. You're changed forever, but you're not ruined, and this has been a big step for me. Remember all those times she would threaten to throw her birth control pills away if we didn't behave? <laughs> don't make me make a baby. <laughs> I'm going to throw away my pills. <laughs> From Rolling Stone, June 94, she says, and now with her piano's help, Amos is facing down what she calls the violent incident, the rape from her early 20s that has hung over much of her adult life. While she is incredibly open with her feelings stemming from the assault, including her inability to experience total sexual release and the fact that she has pretended she is a prostitute in intimate situations, her reluctance to discuss the specifics of the incident indicates how deeply she is still affected by it. I don't want to give all the details because he's out there and he can find me. More than two years after writing Me and a Gun, the topic is not addressed anywhere on Pink. Amos continues to perform it as part of her recovery. Me and a Gun has been my flashlight, the thing that has taken me by the hand and led me down a very, very long recovery path. I take issue with this. I disagree it's not anywhere on Under the Pink. Obviously, she talked about that's the next step in her healing and it's in Baker Baker. What else is it in? I would say past the mission. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Obviously, in passing at first glance, it would be hard to connect the dots. But as we sort of mentioned, I think the waitress is part of that process, too. Or a first step towards acknowledging and accepting her capacity for violence, which I think she was very uncomfortable with. I also think it's in Icicle and Cloud on My Tongue. So basically, the entire album is a follow-up <laughs> right. to Me and a Gun. And the journalist has yeah. entirely missed the point of Under the Pink. Fuck this journalist. <laughs> Don't make me throw out my pills. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> but, you know, this was from 1994. At this point, there's no use crying over spilled milk that's for you that's that's for you i'm not suggesting that Call i reuse your joke and you put it in the show Call back. Call back. that's a top 10 moment for me i don't know why but that clearly <laughs> that really landed <laughs> go ahead and read this from the face uk october 94 and david there are a ton of quotes and i love our commitment to get through them all but i do too I and that, i also well, love your commitment to asking that i read the really long ones yeah read this from the face and I'll see you in, f in an hour and a half. And I'll see you in hell. All right. It gets disappointing when the British lose their sense of humor with my stuff. I mean, the whole Spin the Viking issue was. Remember the Spin the Viking issue? Of course I do. How could I forget? I was in this very serious conversation with this woman about compartmentalizing different parts of yourself to survive a violent attack. It was a very heavy conversation. And I said, the child in you is the one who gets violated the most in any violent attack. You kill your child first. You have to, to survive the situation. The child is gone, and the hooker in you survives. That's what kept me alive. The little girl had been operating and would have been dead by now, and I have no doubt of that because I was dealing with a maniac who wanted to cut women up. Put the sex aside for a minute. This is about hatred. So my prostitute got me out of it. That side of me that understood what the energy this guy was feeding off was. Just keep him from going crazy. A little girl screaming and crying would have got me killed, so I got rid of her. And bringing her back has taken a lot of work. Not to be a bitter, tough broad, but to allow yourself to be vulnerable again. How do you do that? Well, that's where the different personalities come in. The strong side of myself. Whether I call it the prostitute or Sven the Viking, the little child is the one who's so much a part of the writing of the song. She's the core, you know, the honesty and the openness. So I said to this interviewer, the part of me that's Sven the Viking, if anyone tries to hurt the little child, he's going to rip their balls off. 
that quote really resonates with me. I really feel that deep down in the idea of in the moment compartmentalization. Like, how am I going to get out of this situation or how am I going to deal with this person? And I'm taking in the energy that they are putting out there and making the conscious choice in the moment. Like, if I come at this person in this way, if I start to cry and scream, it's going to be worse and I can get killed. So mm. I have to act like I'm enjoying it and I have to act, you know what I mean? Like, you're, that's what she means by prostitute got her out of it. That she acted like it was great fun or, you know, that this was something that she was willingly complicit in. And that's what she means when she says, I cut out the pieces of myself. She was angry at herself for allowing this to happen, for, the, for what she took away from herself, what she stripped mm. herself of. Mm. And that to me really resonates here with so my prostitute got me out of it and I feel like a lot of victims of sexual assault or rape have been in that exact position have been mm. forced to be in that exact position uh, so therefore I, I and I don't think it's been up until this point as clearly stated as it is there mm. so I'm glad we read that long quote David I am as well and I want to say too I was really responding to the language about the child that she was using because mm -hmm. as we've worked our way through this album, we've said a couple of times that we feel like this song or this line comes from a very young place. And that's not meant to imply that it's not sophisticated or anything like that, but more so that she's going back to resolve trauma from a literal young place in her childhood that she wasn't allowing herself to experience. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. You know, who she was as a prodigy, she didn't have a traditional or even let's say a real quote unquote childhood in the sense that there were a lot of expectations and responsibility placed upon her. So you sort of combine that with this violent experience where she felt like she had to sort of cut out the child to survive, like that's a lot. So it's no wonder she's going back to that to try to reclaim yeah. the child, I guess. You're right. This is from Nomad, Australian TV, October 21st, 1994. And the interviewer asks, Mina Gunn is about being raped, attacked, must have been a very painful song to write. And Tori says, I wrote it after I saw Thelma and Louise and that had, um, I had to let out all that incredible hurt and anger. The anger came, the song was written in the afternoon that I had seen Thelma and Louise and completed. It had always been acapella. And when I started writing it, it was as if the blinders were on. I knew exactly what I wanted to say. I mean, I was almost in a trance writing that song. I was back there in that experience and yet another part of me was guiding it on. I felt like I was protected writing it when it was over, when I had looked at what I had written. And the hardest part is performing it every night because although I know I'm safe, a part of me has to go to that place to sing it. And what the whole process has taught me is I'm not a victim. Although when I go in and sing it every night, there's a certain energy I bring to it to make it feel very real that after the performance is over, I can go and have an ice cream and have a life and say, this is over. I can talk about it and I have love in my life. And it's really important to get to that stage. Mm. Amen, girl. Amen. Mm. Snaps. Let's do a couple more quotes. Let's finish out 1994, if you can believe we're still barely in 94. That year did seem <laughs> to go on forever. Let's finish out 94, and then let's hit the line by line, yeah? Okay. Why don't you read this one from Keyboard Mag? The paradox is that the more you personalize or Tori Amosize your songs, the more universal they become to those who work to get them. And Tori replies, but I don't ever think that these are Tori Amos songs. I translate them in such a way because of Tori's experiences that would be different from so-and-so's experiences. But as I've told you, these songs already exist. I'm writing a song right now about no matter what I try to do, this person doesn't want what I want. Now, anybody can understand that. I mean, 
How can you not want to sip from a yummy chocolate soda or touch feet together? Even if you're the person who doesn't want it, it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on. The rapist knows me in a gun. The boyfriend of the girl who was raped knows me in a gun because he's had to live through it in a different way. The parents of the girl, we could go on and on. I wonder what song she was writing about no matter what I try to do, this person doesn't want what I want. Caught a light sneeze. You think? Maybe. Yeah, this was November 94, so like mm-hmm. coming into horses maybe? Off with Superfly. You would if I would, but you never would. <gasps> I bet it was. Milkwood and Silkwood. Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. From Take to the Sky fanzine, issue six, December 1994, Brian Hughes asks her, you recently received an award for the song Mean a Gun from the Rape Crisis Center. I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about that. Also, did writing that song act as a catharsis for you? And how did you settle upon an acapella format? I don't think that that song could have been done any other way. Because I wanted you to be in the car with her. So you needed to be right there as she was singing in the car. The only thing that makes sense with her driving is that she's just singing while driving. Whenever I hear me in a gun, it's always current to me. When I hear other songs, I know they're instruments that happened in a moment somewhere. But me in a gun is always continuously happening because it's just a naked voice, you see. It's always currently going. She's always driving this car. She's always on, singing, still been driving. And I wanted you to be there in the moment every time you heard it. Hearing what she was going through, so you're there, and it's happening, not that it happened. That was very important to me that you were there with her experiencing it, because that's the only way you could understand. I get that. Absolutely. And that's a great way. Like, it's not just about let's strip the instruments away so you can hear what she's saying, but also, wow, this is in that moment. You can't pinpoint this to any instrumentation. It'll never be dated because instruments come and go and change. It'll always just be that naked voice. Yeah. And I guess technically, too, that she didn't want it to be about a moment in time, meaning a specific recording session mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that it happened in the past, that it was all happening in the present every time you listen to it. This is our last quote from 1994. This is from the New Musical Express UK, December 17th, 94, right to the end of the year. We're going to split this, David. She says, okay. I was a nerd as a teenager and damn it, I love nerds. It's no big deal. It doesn't take much out of you to be a sympathetic ear. Also, you've got to understand that one in three women who comes to my shows is raped or sexually abused, half of them by their fathers. If they get something out of my Songs, then that's halfway to having someone to trust in life. But it can be disturbing. One night, we got a note backstage from a 14-year-old girl telling how she was raped every night by her father. So you say, put the kettle on, get her back here. And you talk to her, and of course, this girl can't go anywhere. You try and help her see that she's got choices and some hope. You tell her to get in touch with Rain, the Rape Abuse and Incest National Network, which Tori helped launch this year. But ultimately, the best you can do is talk real late so that her father will be asleep when she gets home. Pretty useless, I know. But that kind of feeling gets to you. The feeling that you can't stop something terrible from happening right before your eyes. Another side of Tori's open-heart surgery approach to songwriting and her public is that you feel some people expect a constant emotional striptease on her part, something for their own titillation. Yeah, that first album, Little Earthquakes, was very naked. It was me rationalizing my life at that point like a diary. But to be honest, I don't really want to show the cellulite on my hip anymore. I've put some clothes on since then, and I'd rather explore that present and what a hand in a glove can do. She's asked on Music Plus for the umpteenth time in her career about the rape experience described in Me and a Gun. I'm always wary about that. I've been on TV programs where they advertise it. Coming up next, Tori Amos talking about being raped. Like it's tantalizing for the audience. I don't want some sicko jerking off listening to my story, so I don't go in too deep in public. Anyway, the last thing I want to be known as is the girl who got raped. The big turnaround you make in your head is from victim to survivor. For me, Little Earthquakes was the transition, and Under the Pink is like, let's move on from here. You can't get attached to your victim's anonymous badge, because then he's won. She talks a little bit about this 14-year-old girl coming backstage, right? 
and kind of has inspired or inspired her to do something about it. She's talked in other press about wanting to take the girl on the road with her, but them saying you can't cross state lines and it would be kidnapping. And so like, what can she do? And it must be really like to feel helpless is really terrible, but to feel Mm. helpless at that level night after night, because like, what can you do? You know, it's hard to think of Tori feeling the weight of this responsibility meaning I've put this song out into the world and wanted to share my experience and now I've initiated a dialogue or people are coming to me for help. So what can I do to actually provide that help in the platform that yeah. I have? Very generous. Yeah, and also, you know, you when you've got kids looking to you for help, to not want to help or to not try to help, that's not in our nature, you know? No. Like, on that uplifting note, why don't we <laughs> head into the line by line, Yes. Okay. Now, I want to talk about approaching the song as a piece of art. The reason we've decided to do a line-by-line, obviously, is because there are lyrics and there's a narrative running through this song. And I want to talk about it as a story. I want to make sure that we go into the lines as what's happening to this character. So hit it. Roll it, Ollie. 5 a.m. Friday morning. Thursday night. Far from sleep. So we got a time. It's 5 a.m. Friday morning, and she hasn't slept all night. Is that what you got from this? Yeah. You know, kind of like she's indicated, we're here in the moment. It's happening now, right? She's not saying it was 5 a.m. Yeah, exactly. Friday morning. It is 5 a.m. Friday this morning. Is, exactly. This is this moment right now. Yeah. That's where I'm at. Yeah. Haven't you told right. me in the past that 5 a.m. is like the most desperate time? Between 4 and 5, yeah. Mm. Four and, between 4 and 5 is considered the most desperate time of night. It's when a lot of the, most of the suicides happen. There's mm. a play called 448 Psychosis that I remember talking to you about, written by Sarah Kane, about that moment, about 448 being the witching hour. For her, like her hardest time of night to get through. Yeah a lot of stuff goes on and at five o'clock is usually associated with the dawn which is usually associated with like okay i can try it again another day you know yeah that's usually the case when you're waking up at dawn but when you're on the wrong side of it so to speak and you haven't gone to bed yet it has a whole different feel to it i think oh for sure yeah like oh i'm fucked like i stayed up all night and yeah uh, it just feels wrong have you heard of the doctor's trick of how to make it feel like you've got a full night's sleep but not no but i'm gonna grab a pen to write this down And it's a trick I use very often. It's if you've stayed up very, very late, I don't know, editing a podcast, for example, mm-hmm. and it's coming up on 5 a.m. or 5.15 whenever sunrise is. If you go to bed about five to 10 minutes before sunrise and wake up about 10 minutes after sunrise, so you slept really only about 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes, your body tricks you because you went to bed when it's dark and you woke up when it's fully light and your body feels like you have gotten a full night's sleep. Ta-da! Tut tut. That that requires a lot of control over one's body and ability to fall asleep like it will, I guess. If you're up that late and you're tired, you're going to be able to fall asleep pretty quickly. You just Mm. have to set your alarm and wake up in 30 minutes. Maybe. It's a trick. It's a trick the doctors use. It's a trick all the doctors use. Mm, Those doctors are tricky. Well, I don't like to take any chances, so I go to bed at 8 p.m. and wake up at 8 a.m. What a lovely time. I'm still up and driving. Can't go home. Obviously. Why can't she? I don't know. And that's something that I've always wondered. It's the narrative of this song makes me think that they are looking for her. Like she has to just keep moving. You're so right. right? And that to me is, I think, what fed into my initial read of the song is about her having been involved in some kind of crime where she was like a perpetrator because she seems to be like on the run. Yeah. It seems like she's hiding from someone. I can't go home, obviously, which takes us into this next bit. Mm. So I'll just... 
change direction Cause they'll soon know where I live And I wanna live So they're hunting her, right? Yeah. It seems like someone's trying to find her and going to her home. I guess that's what we can take from that. And that seems to indicate that maybe there was an escape that happened. Oh, yeah, it does. Mm. Especially in the narrative of her being assaulted. The only way that they would be coming after her is if she, you know, the idea that she had run away and they need to silence her right. in some way. Got a full time and some chips. So even though it's 5 a.m., I get the sense from that line that it's a full night ahead. You know, like she's got a full tank and some chips. So she's going to keep driving mm-hmm. until that tank is empty. And until those chips are done, she's mm-hmm. just going to keep going. And the metaphor, there's something so beautiful about that metaphor of just driving and really trying to escape the memory of this and this just trying to outrun it and drive till something happens, until it goes away or till there's no end point to this drive. You know, it's just like forever in this moment. Yeah. And to me, it also feels like maybe there's an avoidance of other people happening. She doesn't want to have to go home or be out around other people where she'll have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it'll be obvious that something terrible has happened to her and she doesn't want to have to address that like chips just seem so casual like yeah to me that sort of like grounds the song like she's really just like observing through this kind of like bleary dawn glancing down at her passenger seat and like she sees a bag of chips and it's all just kind of happening in slow motion yeah was me and a gun and a man on my back so let's talk about the fact that it's not her and a man on her back who has a gun it's her and the gun it's her facing off against the gun right Mm -hmm. is that how you read this yes Mm -hmm. it's her confronting this weapon because that's kind of what it is you know it's her with this hard stop like this is what she's battling and it's more about the gun than the man on her back in a way do we think that the gun is also a phallic symbol well, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I've ever thought of it that way, but I can see that it is, mm-hmm. you know, like a weapon, like a just as a weapon, you mean? I haven't really either because the rest of the song is so naked and let's say literal, for lack of a better yeah. word, that I always just thought of it as, you know, a physical gum that was used as a part of this experience. But And I sang holy, holy as he buttoned down his pants. I mean, that's pretty clear what's going on, right? In the moment that she's driving, kind of going back there, we finally get the past tense. We start the song off in the moment. I'm still up and driving in the moment. And it was me and a gun. And so she is kind of going back to that. It was me and a gun and a man on my back. Yeah. Saying in past tense, holy, holy. As he buttoned Edie, buttoned down his pants. Starting to come back in flashes, maybe. Yeah. The detail. Mm -hmm. And you kind of get that image, kind of like when you're driving, you know, and, and the lights kind of pass you by and like any movie that has anybody driving their face is lit for a second and it's like shadows and then lit you know as the headlights pass and then shadows and i feel like each of those is like a detail Mm. it's kind of coming back to her you can laugh it's kind of funny the things you think times like these let's talk about that because that's not actually in the lyrics in the booklet it skips over that. You can laugh. It's kind of funny. Things mm. you think times like these. So why do you think she skips over it? Why does Tori have such an issue printing the printing? 
just print what you say. I know. <laughs> well, yeah, she has done that on occasion where she'll just leave out an entire verse or even just bang. a line. Yeah, bang. <laughs> or even a whole song. You're right. <laughs> right. Agent Orange, no thank you. Eh, meh. <laughs> I don't know if to some degree she looks at the printed version of the lyrics as separate from the actual song and she's presenting them more as poetry, let's say, that could stand on its own. So yeah. she chooses not to include certain things. But it's interesting because she does give us permission to laugh. You can laugh. It's kind of funny the things you think times like these, like how when you are going through something terrible, your mind can wander to something completely, like a complete non sequitur. Mm. Interesting too that that section specifically is left out of the lyrics because on the Dewdrop in tour, she pretty consistently left that out of performances too. Like revoking the permission to yeah, laugh. That's what it kind of what it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe even she just looked at her lyrics and had them print them out from her own lyrics. I was going to say that, that, that too. It's very possible. Yeah. Forgot that that was actually a part of the song. Mm-hmm. She's done that before. There are a couple of instances where, for example, when she redid Waitress 98, when she redid that as Pip, it came with different lyrics. <laughs> it came with a different section. And yeah. then like, she suddenly brought Club Sandwich back in or whatever was missing before. God, you're so right. We're lucky that in Mesa, Arizona, when she debuted Bang, she didn't just come out and stand there bang i did what, it what, what, i did it you guys remember remember when i sang I bang <laughs> but there's other instances too where she's had the lyrics printed and it's been not quite exactly how she's performed it before like cooling let's like i can see cooling having the lyrics printed and then suddenly now she's doing the brambles bit because it's there on the page yeah you know or even like the, she never did that before even father lucifer with i ran and then i ran from him she changed it yeah. to i ran and then oh, i yeah. laughed because she couldn't get it right so maybe there right. are certain sections that just trip her up so she decides to just like drop them because she Whatever. can't get it right yeah like i haven't seen barbados so i must get out of this what do you think is the significance of barbados other than maybe a location that she hadn't been to that she was wanting to go to maybe she was just grasping for something that seemed as far away from where she was at the time and not just geographically but you know this kind of tropical warm inviting part of the world that if she could just like project herself there she would feel removed enough then she would be out of this moment yes exactly yeah the way she presents it in the narrative, it gives her, it gives the character something that they're fighting for almost. Like, I'm not going to be done in because there's things I still have to do. And I just got to keep focused on all the things that I want and haven't done. And that'll keep me safe and get me through this situation. I think so, too. She's calling on, this character is calling on her will to live and reminding herself that I still have things that I want to do or see. So I have to find the kind of resolve to make it through this. Yeah. Yes, I wore a slinky red thing. Does that mean... I should spread. Do you remember that 2020 interview where Tori's talking about this experience in the aftermath? She's kind of addressing why she chose not to pursue anything legally. And she says, come on, I was a nightclub singer. Yeah. Do we think there's a conversation that happened here where it's kind of the typical kind of awful knee-jerk response of, well, you must have been doing something to encourage this to happen? If not a conversation, a physical conversation with someone, then probably a conversation with herself Mm -hmm. right like to talk herself out of like how she says it you're right in that interview come on i was a nightclub singer i dressed sexy she's already talked herself out of pursuing any legal action there's also kind of a blaming there 
in a way. And I think that this verse right here takes that on and turns it on its head. Like, yes, I did this and this is what I wore, but does that mean I should spread? And, you know, she talked a lot about at the time playing the hotel lounges and dressing as sexy and as racy as she could. You know, the skirts were getting shorter. The leather was getting tighter. Maybe she did have that guilt. I think that we all have that guilt of like, what did I do to bring this on to myself? Mm -hmm. For you, your friends, your father... Mr. Ed. What is that about? Because isn't Mr. Ed her father? That's how I read it now, for sure. And it's kind of odd phrasing to call him Mr. Ed, if for no other reason than, you know, obviously can bring to mind the horse. Well, yeah, before I knew Mr. Ed was her father, that's the first thing I thought of. Mm -hmm. For you, your friends, your father, Mr. Ed, and trying to figure out how to like marry that into the narrative or like what she's saying. For you, your friends, your father, anyone, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I took that. But I don't I don't understand why it's Mr. Ed. Any thoughts? Other than kind of like an actual technical decision in terms of word flow, maybe she's just trying to obscure things a little bit rather than saying my father. She says your father and Mr. Ed. That's interesting too what you said earlier is like is she having a conversation with someone? Is she having a conversation with her father maybe in her mind? Mm. Maybe she also, you know, she's talked a lot about people's expectations of her in trying to please other people or even being manipulated by other people. So maybe that's all just kind of bubbling to the surface now, the way she's felt sort of used by men in her life. That is really interesting. Like her father wanted her to be this one kind of performer, one kind of singer, one kind of writer. I wonder, too, if she's sort of conflating the YKTR experience when she allowed herself to be packaged as a, let's say, bimbo, Mm -hmm. and that she was wearing kind of revealing clothes, like maybe to her, symbolically, she like turned her back on everything she believes in and like all her kind of core values. And now she's sort of feeling guilty about that and wondering if on some level that all led to this happening, like this betrayal of self. Absolutely. I think you nailed it right there because like you said, the word packaged and feeling guilty that she allowed this on some level to happen goes back to the what you said earlier about the conversation. Yes, I wore a slinky red thing and how she says, well, come on, I dress sexy. I was a nightclub singer. Like my case was over before it began. There is a lot of guilt there. The fact that she sold herself out is part of this verse. Uh-huh. Nice comments, David. It was me and a gun and a man on my back. But I haven't seen Barbados, so I must get out of this. And then we have the chorus again, you know, which is a really stark chorus. Again, she's still... It just is still her and the gun and her being confronted with this violence. It's Mm. the violence, not the man so much, right? I know what this means. Do you connect this line and I know what this means to the next line? Or is is that its own line? And I know what this means, period. I connect it to the following line, for sure. I know what this means, me and Jesus few years back used to hide so this character knows what this means because jesus gave her the information prior she has a knowledge of it is it because they used to hang that she knows what this means or what is it that this means what does this mean to me this is another version of the conversation that she has with the angel in leather meaning if you Mm. jump you best jump far that maybe she's choosing or considering kind of a drastic course of action here. And she knows that if she chooses whatever it is, she won't come back from it. Yeah. And that could mean anything. That could mean vengeance. That could mean suicide, I guess. I don't know. 
me and Jesus a few years back used to hang and he said it's your choice babe just remember I don't think you'll be back in three days time so you choose well this part is the part that really breaks my heart and this is where if i'm going to have an emotional response to this song it's often at this part because the way i interpret it is that jesus is telling her you have a difficult choice here and you can like let's say it is enact violence or vengeance right you have a difficult choice here you can do that it's your choice but your life isn't going to be over in three days time you're going to have to live with the consequences of what you choose you're right so choose well yeah like you're not just going to come back here in three days and not have to deal with it you're going to have to deal with it your whole life mm. and so to me there's something really sad bittersweet and sad and empowering i don't know there's something there that, for me that really accesses this like grief of self-reliance do you know that movie slacker no i don't think so. directed by that guy who did waking life and oh. a couple other movies and anyway slacker is a movie that follows like one person and then they interact with someone and then it follows that other person and then it constantly keeps switching main characters and at one point this guy like breaks into somebody's house and this older man comes out into the lawn and he's shouting may you never know the pain of self-mistrust that line has always stuck with me and it evokes this kind of strange response the same way this does, which is you have to trust yourself and you have no one else out there that you can, not that you can rely on, but that you are the creator of your own destiny in a way. Mm. And you have to make the choice and you have to choose well because you have to live with what you choose. Oh my God, I'm getting emotional. I feel too that she's considering like, what if my response to this is an eye for an eye or answering an act of violence with another act of violence? Will that ultimately solve anything? And like you're saying, I, whatever I choose to do, I'm going to have to live with the consequences for the rest of my life. So I want to really think about this. Tell me what's right. Is it my right to be on my stomach or frets to me, I'm hearing, again, she's still considering some kind of retaliation and wrestling with the idea of if that's morally right or the right thing to do or the right response to what happened to her and her response as well. Was it right for me to have suffered this attack? To me, I see, I hear a conversation like she's obviously talking to someone, right? And I feel like she's talking to Jesus again. Yeah. Jesus or herself. I get tripped up by of Fred's Seville. When I could easily accept to be on my stomach in Fred's Seville. Yes. In Fred's Seville. Mm -hmm. Does that trip you up too? It does. And it almost seems like almost for effect, there is an implied like on the floor of Fred's Seville oh. there, but she gets like choked up or the words don't come out or something like that. So she's kind of like mumbling her way through that part of the song. Yeah. It's me and a gun and a man on my back. But I haven't seen Barbados, so I must get out of this. Did you ever look at this as she was trying to wrestle with the gun? And maybe that this moment, or not trying to physically wrestle with the gun, but like contemplating whether she could grab the gun or the character could grab the gun. And that's the conversation she had with Jesus. And that's what she's wrestling with throughout the song. I didn't. Her role has always seemed very passive to me. And if anything, it's that she's staring down the barrel of the gun, not trying right. to wrest it from someone's hands or something like that. 
Even though there, it's your choice, babe. Just remember. Well, you could be right, especially when I factor in the idea of that pip performance, because right. maybe that is kind of that fantasy or wish fulfillment. If I had done something differently or ripped the gun or whatever it was out of his hands, that she's playing that out. So maybe you're right. Yeah. M- maybe that is what's going through her head in the moment. But there was some kind of real struggle. I'm not sure. Do you know Carolina? Where the biscuits are soft and sweet. It doesn't surprise me that she would go to something very warm and comforting. This is almost like her mother, right? She's like thinking of her mother. For sure. Because who would she know that makes biscuits in Carolina? Mm, Except mm-hmm. for her mom, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. To me, this is a substitution for coming out and crying for her mom. I agree. Or just calling on kind of the most comforting childhood memory that she can conjure at the moment. Yeah. These things go through your head. When there's a man on your back, you're pushed flat on your stomach. And then we're thrust back into the moment of what's really going on, right? We go from that really sweet memory, which has a run attached to it. The Carolina, that, like that's a run. Mm-hmm. And then we're back when you're pushed flat on your stomach. And a lot of times live, it was horrifying yes you're pushed flat and it's like nah let's remind you where we are in the here and now very startling she would sort of trail off into a real whisper and then really yell or punch flat like you just said and it would really make you jump and pull you back to that moment it's not a classic cadillac i mean it's not a classic cadillac it's a place where horrific things happen Mm -hmm. you know and your car can be beautiful on the outside but it's treacherous on the inside Mm. me and a gun and a man on my back but i haven't seen barbados so i must get out of this and kind of like how at the beginning you're thrust into a moment and that's what it is you're in that moment here at the end you're left in a moment you're will you will forever be in that car wishing that you could get out of this. I haven't seen Barbados, so I must get out of I mean, that song is pretty straightforward. I'm glad that we kind of talked through some of those ideas. Any final thoughts on the lyrics? Again, I think it's important to sort of discuss them as presented to us because Tori has emphasized again and again that she's in storyteller mode here. So rather than we're looking at this as, let's say, a dramatization as opposed to a documentary. For sure. We're analyzing the narrative in the song. Mm -hmm. I'm not like at all, I'm not at all interested in going into her personal life like that. Mm -hmm. So do you have any favorite lyrical moments? It's a weird question, but like there are things that really stick out to me. For example, I'll go with mine and then maybe you can tell me yours if you're interested. That whole question, that whole conversation with Jesus where he tells her, it's your choice, babe. Mm-hmm. Just remember, I don't think you'll be back in three days time. So you choose well. Like that whole phrasing of that to get to, so you choose well, that moment really resonates with me. And also, do you know Carolina where the biscuits mm-hmm. are soft and sweet? It's like a perfect moment of reverie and I need to get through this. And so I need to call on sweetest memory. You're yeah. Right. That's my answer to that question as well. Favorite moment, lyrical moment, and vocal moment too, I suppose. The Do You Know Carolina moment, it really swells. And you can just feel the power of that memory or projecting to that place, kind of pulling her through the experience. And it's also just very emotional 
and vulnerable. So vulnerable is a great word. And I think my favorite vocal moment is, and I know, I don't know. There's just something right there that it cracks a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. For the same reason, there's a vulnerability there. Mm -hmm. This is a cover of Me and a Gun by Mama's Gan. We found it on YouTube and we'll link to it in our show notes at songsoftoriamus.com. Friday morning, Thursday night, far from sleep, still up and trying, can go home, obviously, so just change direction. Cause they'll soon know where I live I wanna live Got a full tank and some chips It was me and the gun And the man on my back and sang holy holy as he buttoned down his pants you can laugh it's kind of funny things you think in times like this like i haven't seen barbados so i must get out of Slinky red thing Does this mean that shoes spread? This is from Really Deep Thoughts fanzine, issue 9, winter 1995. She says, to survive an experience, you kill parts of yourself. If you've truly been violated, if you're going to get those parts back, you're going to have to trace when you numbed them. It's so easy to lie. Look, you've numbed those parts to survive, and maybe you couldn't communicate with those parts. I don't even know if I knew what they were until I worked with someone. I worked with a skilled medicine woman. I was very fortunate. Unfortunately, publicizing her experience wasn't completely in Amos's control. She says, I didn't make the decision to go public until the British press was so on my tail that it was either sink or swim. Hmm. I'm not surprised that this interview and the language she's using is from the brink of being on the Boys for Pele era, since mm -hmm. that was so much about sort of reclaiming and integrating the parts of oneself. And that's the language that she's using here. So that's where her head was at, yeah. for sure. Do you think that she thought that she would just write the song and no one would ever hear it? Or maybe, you know, like she said earlier, no one was really coming to my shows. And then the British press was just not letting up. I think was... all of that. And maybe sort of naively, she thought that people would just take a piece of art as sort of gifted to them and discuss it as yeah. such without asking her to dive into her personal story or the personal inspiration for things. Oh, how naive. <laughs> This is a clip from MTV's Ultrasound with the Tory Files, 1998. Have you ever heard of such a thing? A Tory File? I'll take Tory File over ear with feet. You're right. That's not my tup of tea. It's not my tup of tea. I think about it every day. Yeah. <laughs> Me and a Gun is a song she wrote about her experience when she was raped. Uh, I think that was around the time that Why Can't Tory Read 
happened. I know it was an acquaintance that she met at a show that actually went to her show and she went to give him a ride home and he raped her. She wrote the song as sort of, I, 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 in my opinion, it's sort of a therapy for her. It's a catharsis for her to talk about it and I know for other fans it is too. I wrote this song a few months ago after I saw Thelma and Louise and um, remind me of something that happened to me a few years ago. I sing this song a lot. feels actually very good to sing this song. It's called Mina Gun. This is from the Akron Beacon Journal, Thursday, September 12th, 1996. I think I'm working on that place in me that was terrorized and really afraid. Now when I sing it, it gives me a lot of strength because I'm not running. Amos 32 took a long time to get to the point where she can say the song is healing. What helped her get there, she says, was realizing, to her shock and amazement, how many other people out there have experienced violence as well. Almost everybody in some way has experienced some level of violence from one side or another says Amos, an articulate and thoughtful woman who often takes noticeable pauses before answering a question, obviously contemplating her responses. At a certain point, there does become a place where the heart opens up and people express their fears and pain. That's when the healing really takes place. She reminds us that violence against women has been going on for hundreds of years. There were times when if you were a woman, your husband could beat you and rape you or whatever. People could do what they wanted with you. You were meat. You were nothing unless your brothers and fathers protected you, unless they were raping you. She says, however, she believes progress has been made in this century. It's a great leap to heal thousands of years of violence. Adding to her healing process is an adjunct of sorts to me in a gun, the standard somewhere over the rainbow, of all things, which she occasionally does in concert these days following me in a gun. The song is also found on her new Hey Jupiter recording with other new songs such as Sugar and Honey. Funny you ask. She says about Somewhere Over the Rainbow, a song she has discussed with Liza Minnelli. I'm questioning that whole sentiment, the idea that the dreams you dare to dream really do come true. They might come true, but you may have some scars and wounds you take with you that they don't tell you. The rainbow isn't attained without chasing your demons and your pain. Says Amos. She doesn't mind exposing so much of herself to strangers because she's a hermit in her personal life. Very protective of my heart privately, but publicly, it's the other extreme. I keep out of sight because I feel my thoughts are so uncovered in my music that in my own life I don't feel social. Mm. There's a level of privacy I keep day to day. I like this idea of just like interspersing Tory quotes. <laughs> I would love to just have like a quote generator, a Tory quote generator. Or a button like Rosie O'Donnell. Just yeah. push and Tory <laughs> yeah. will talk. I'm telling you, David, if we ever do a live show, I have a little uh, MIDI keyboard that I'll program with different quotes. The first one, I already know which one that's going to be. It's going to be, Norman, I fucked it in the snort. <laughs> Norman, I fucked it. <laughs> Can I just say real quick that this section of the interview where she says there were times when if you were a woman, your husband could beat you and rape you or whatever. To me, that kind of clarifies the sentiment of, does that mean I should spread for you, your friends, your father, Mr. Ed? Oh, yeah. Like, how does our culture or has our culture viewed women and violence against women? That's a really good point. The press finally seems to finally have let up on this topic because there's not so much talking about me and a gun in 1996. Rolling Stone brings it back up in June of 1998, and they say, A few years back, Tori Miss was sitting in yet another anonymous hotel room, flipping channels on the TV, when she happened across one of her own concert performances. As she saw herself writhing on the piano stool, furiously tossing her mane, the performer had an odd reaction. She was utterly horrified. I know when I'm playing passionately, and it's primitive, and it's as old as time, says Amos. But I know when I look at myself and I'm in anguish, sexualizing myself. At that point, I was very cut off. I only knew how to express myself sexually through my instrument, but it left me as soon as I got off stage. So I searched for it, and I tried to find it in other people. 
It's painful when you don't know how to be sexual. I was so torn apart by the pain of not being a woman. I wanted to experience things I'd heard other women talk about. Like Pinocchio said, I want to be a real little boy. It's real private, Amos adds, trailing off in a rare moment of self-censorship. I think that that is a really interesting reaction to look back at the 92 Tory tossing her hair and, you know, being really sexy at the piano Mm -hmm. and to think that girl was just pretending Mm -hmm. she doesn't know how to be a woman, Mm -hmm. being horrified by your own behavior. Mm. And I think we all have that reaction when we look back at ourselves and think, God, I was so naive. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, we all have that kind of, I think. This is from Inside Connection Magazine, October 2001. Amos, who has never shied away from controversy or confrontation of any sort, is still actively involved in Rain, the rape, abuse, and incest national network she founded in 1994. These days, she feels her contribution to the cause is as a spokesperson, someone to, quote, keep the awareness up out there to let people know that Rain does exist. She stresses the fact that as a former rape victim herself, one can, quote, move from victim consciousness to healing consciousness. But as she quickly adds, you have to walk the walk, and it is a walk. There are defining moments where someone will say something, you are having a conversation and light does come through the wall you can see the light and it is a tangible thing as you are healing from any kind of invasion you do not want to be invaded again i do find a lot of people sometimes in their walk to try and claim slices of themselves that they run into different groups or whatever that almost assault them again for the people out there who have not done the work themselves it can all become a little bit of a muddle of the blind leading the blind Mm. in her own life amos made the choice to get help over the years she had quote some pretty extensive therapy in order to help her heal she believes it has made a huge difference in the way she sees herself music can be very healing obviously it's very healing to tori but music is also not therapy do you know also you need to talk to somebody yeah really so let's never mistake the two this is a clip from cnn connector of the day in 2009 we took a jump from 2001 to 2009 david Mm. Greg um, has written in to ask you about the sexual abuse that you survived. How have you allowed happiness, he says, back into your life? Becoming a mother was the missing piece of the puzzle for me. And I guess when I was pregnant with Natasha, any kind of darkness that I had been holding on to, and I had been working with actually a... um, She's known in America, but she was a British doctor of psychology, and she ran um, one of the wings of Cedars-Sinai in L.A., and she helped me for 10 years Mm. to try and work through things. But it was the birth of my daughter that kicked out, literally kicked out any kind of, I don't know, um, negativity, Mm. self-abuse that I was holding on to. Would you like to read this from Rolling Stone, December 18th, 2009? Yes, I would. Tori revisited Little Earthquakes, right? And she's kind of doing like a track by track. That's right. Yeah. And she says, difficult work. Raw. I'd seen Thelma and Louise, and after seeing it, I went off and spent some time by myself. Days. Processing so much that I hadn't been able to begin to become conscious about. And it was through gut-wrenching pain, hysteria, I think, that the music began to come. In the quiet, in the silence, being alone. I couldn't speak to or be with anybody, so I just went off to one of my secret private haunts that you go in the world. You just leave everything you know and go. 
and that's what I did. And when I came back out again, this song was walking hand in hand with me. It became something I had to sing to move forward. I had to claim it and be the necklaces of somebody I came to work with a few years later. She ran the Cedar sinai Ward. Her name was Dr. Rita Lynn. I worked with her for many, many years because after this song came out, I then began to retreat and put up all those shields again because I couldn't deal with the invasion of all the questioning. It became a whole other process in which people were getting off on that. Nothing was enough, so I needed to retreat. By retreating, I began to take a few steps back in my process. So I began to work with her after Under the Pink when things just got to a place where I needed to do that. And she would say, we have to beat a necklace of truth. And sometimes we have to beat little bits at a time so we can assimilate. And that's kind of key because in singing the song, it was the thing that kept me breathing and conscious. I can't recall what interview, and I know it was on television. She's talking about something. It's during the Boys for Pele era. Maybe it's even during the 1998 Plugged tour. Something that has nothing to do with me and a gun. And the interviewer asks a question about something and then instantly pivots to me and a gun. And it's really surprising. And you can see that it's really surprising to her mm. because it's like, what were we just talking about? Like, how do we get there? Yeah. And so I feel her when she says it was becoming really invasive. Mm. It was re-traumatizing me all of the questioning because it was this salacious need that people have. People were getting off on it. Yeah. I support her a thousand percent and not discussing it anymore. And I feel like she's probably made some kind of conscious effort to not discuss it anymore because we have this lengthy period of time from 2001 to 2009 where you know that goddamn journalists didn't stop asking the questions, but you know, she probably chose not to discuss it. Mm -hmm. This is from 2014, a clip from Texas FM Radio Dublin. The songs on Little Earthquakes, Silent All These Years, uh, Crucify, Me and a Gun, some of these songs are so personal. They deal in quite unflinching detail with your own life. Was it very important to you to have that vulnerability through your art, that the song wouldn't have the same value if you weren't truthful? I guess the song started to be a way of, we're back to surviving, surviving your life. Um, beating a necklace became a, a metaphor for different experiences that might have happened in one's life. Anybody that's listening to this will understand, I think, what I'm saying. You can flash back onto moments in your life, and yet you haven't necessarily been able to um, come to terms with what happened. And that incident, or many incidences, might have made you who you are. So where do you and how do you move on from these experiences? You can't just cut them out of your being. You can't pretend they didn't happen. You might for a while, but at a certain point then these pictures, these feelings start bubbling up. Then that becomes a song, and then that song becomes part of the necklace that we're beating. Billboard, March 19th, 2015, she says, I think once the response started to happen, it was a little too much because the exposure of that type of attention makes you realize that you don't want to be so exposed and you don't want your life to be so exposed. So there were certain deflections that I would put up in order to protect myself and I wasn't prepared for it. I don't know if anybody can prepare you for something like that. Somebody could have tried to talk me through it and it just happened. So I was responding on the fly and sometimes I would put deflectors up in order to keep it about the song and not go on to some talk show and need to have a big reveal about it. Interviewers are the worst. Why don't do it? 
What's up for us? You want to read this from Rolling Stone, June 2nd, 2015? One thing I've learned over the years is that you have to focus on what you're good at. You can't be something you're not. You can't be Marilyn Manson if you're Tori Amos. Thank God. However, what you can do is know what you're good at and then choose how you're going to put that out there in the world. And my strength was structure. I had to get the suits to see that structure was powerful, that it could be a scream, that you didn't need a screaming electric guitar to grab them by the throat and shut them up. And that was achieved with me and a gun. The suits had absolutely nothing to say. The suits. You know, as much as we hate the suits, I was thinking about this in the shower. As much as we hate the suits, let's give them the credit where it's due because if that Little Earthquakes album came out as she originally intended that first cut of it without Precious Things without Girl without Tea in Your Hand without Little Earthquakes if they just had let her release that album it would have made nary a dribble in the pond Mm -hmm. it would not have been a splash and so they knew what they were talking about they needed more and they pushed her for more Uh forever changing the course of her career and we can't just spit in the faces of the suits the suits helped get little earthquakes made and heard so i respect some of the suits i agree with that and i think it has to be the right fit but most people benefit from some kind of collaboration when it comes to creativity constructive criticism feedback yeah if it's good if it's Mm -hmm. meant with good intention absolutely you need a detached perspective most of the time because you're too close to something i'm going to play this little clip right here because I've been looking for the right time to play this. Do you know Tara Kemp from 1990s? She had that one hit wonder, just want to hold you tight. Mm-hmm. Well, I was listening to a podcast that she was on. She talked about Doug Morris and Tori Amos. So here's this clip. Oh my God, I'm so excited to finally get it into the show. I had a meeting with Doug Morris. Best meeting I had with any like major player in the music business because he was the guy that was like, you are the only one who knows who you are as an artist. You're the one who has mm-hmm. to sell right. who you are to the rest of us. Told me this whole story about meeting with um, Tori Amos. Mm-hmm. And he didn't get her. I don't get her. He was like, I don't get you. I don't get your music. I don't get your look. I don't get anything about you. And he said, and she took me into her house and played her music and explained where she was coming from. And he says, and now... She's my favorite artist. I'm her biggest fan. Huh. That's good. See? Now she's his favorite artist. (laughs) Because she showed him. Other interesting things about Me and a Gun, as if we need more, it was originally Oliver Stone wanted to use it in his film, Natural Born Killers, to which she said, (laughs) no. Do we think she also just slapped him or wanted to? (laughs) Almost slapped him. Seemed right that that night. Feel better with Oliver Stone till I almost smacked. How about the Oliver Stone movie then? That he approached you to do some work for that too? Boy, you're quick. How did nobody knows about that? Yes, he approached me and he wanted to use me in a gun. And it's a very violent movie, Natural Born Killers, where the heroine kills 47 people and they wanted to use me in a gun. Now, all I said was me in a gun is based on a very personal experience. And when I say I must get out of this and me in a gun, it doesn't mean go kill 47 people. And it was very important, especially for all those women who've been through that, and some men, that me and a gun, I couldn't have that twisted. There are other works of mine that I would have been more open to different films, but me and a gun, no. If it's not the way you want it, it's not about, okay, 
I've been victimized, so now I'm just going to murder 47 innocent people. Now, that might be cool to some people, but for me, there's a responsibility. When you write pieces like Me and a Gun, where do you stand? So you just wanted to make sure that if he was going to use it, that he used it correctly. And I had no control. And I, again, you know, it's about serial killers. And of all people, Neil Gaiman was the one. I call him up and said, Neil, what am I going to do? And Neil said, Tori, I want you to go read the Morris murders. He wrote a story based on the Morris murders, that serial killer that happened in England. He said, if you can read the Morris murders and give your songs, because this is not about Juliette Lewis. She ain't a serial killer. She's a cute Hollywood actress. These murderers, serial killers, are not cute Hollywood people. They like, you know, sit and talk to little children on videos and then slit their throats. Now, if you can give your material and have it working around those people in their consciousness, and does it mean the same thing? Does it correlate? Is it making sense? Can me and a gun represent that? Then give it to them. And if it can't, then don't. But this is not about Hollywood actors. This is about real serial killers. So, you know, I had to make the decision, and that's the decision I made. I think it's the right decision. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm glad that song wasn't in that movie. What a strange backdrop that would have provided. And if I recall correctly, it was supposed to be used at the moment she was being raped by her father. Mm. I don't know where I remember reading that, but I'm pretty sure that that's where it was supposed to come in. And that's kind of like at the beginning of the film and so then that would have left this song almost justifying it in a way mm. I just feel like she obviously made the right decision I think we yeah. all feel like she made the right decision mm-hmm. and not to say anything about that movie because when it came out I did like that movie and I loved Woody Harrelson at the time I've never really been a Juliette Lewis fan but that's neither here nor there this is not what this show is about well, you managed to make it about that quite often well <laughs> <laughs> she knows what she did but let's talk about Rain you want to talk about Rain sure let's play a couple of PSAs this is from NTV News the birth of of rain 1994 hi i'm allison stewart with mtv news last week the washington dc rape crisis center honored activists including surgeon general joycelyn elders marla thomas and singer tori amos amos was honored for a song from a 1992 debut album the song me and a gun details amos's own real life survival of a sexual assault at the ceremony amos delivered a wrenching acapella rendition of the song and she said she's become a founding member of an organization whose acronym is rain the rape abuse and incest national network rain will become the first nationwide toll-free 24-hour sexual assault hotline when it opens later this summer we haven't worked the details out but we're trying to make it so that it's easy for people to pick up a phone and that they're not alone and they can get tools i mean real tools to begin this victim releasing process, because you, you can stay a victim forever in your mind, and um, there are ways to get through it. And here's a rain PSA. In the time it takes you to brush your teeth, one woman in America is forcibly raped. Unlock the silence. If you need help, call Rain. 1-800-656-HOPE. And a Rain commercial. Hi there, I'm Tori Amos, and I'd like to talk to you about a cause that I really support. It's called Rain. That's R-A-I-N-N. That stands for the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Um, I find it really, really important that people that have had this experience aren't afraid to talk about it. There's a phone number. It's 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-HOPE. And hopefully there'll be people on the other end of the line that help us heal because that's what it's about. 
From Public News, August 10th, 1994, they say, on a much more serious note, she conceived the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, which is a hotline for survivors at 1-800-656-HOPE. During the first week of its existence, the hotline received 3,500 calls, many of these pleas for help and fortitude. Tori says, Well, I've gotten so many letters, mostly from young women, but I've gotten some from men, too. When you read them, my first response was just being overwhelmed with so many letters where these people hadn't been able to get on with their lives. And I understand what that's like, because I've gone through the same thing. And at a certain point, we have to make a choice. We have to choose how we're going to continue our lives. Are we going to stay a victim, walking around this planet going, well, this experience happened to me, so I'm a ruined woman? No, we don't have to do that. I mean, this is kind of like the new frontier. We don't know what kind of people we're going to be when we start healing because this planet hasn't been a healing planet. We don't know of a time when people have dealt with issues and really transformed situations. So setting up the hotline was a place where these people could speak to people who've been through it and hopefully help take them to the next step in healing. Catharsis as a thematic subject recurs on both Little Earthquakes and Under the Pink. The empowerment that is born out of self-discovery and self-autonomy is another subject she mines in her lyrics. Feelings are like tools. If you go into your toolbox, now you've got a screwdriver, a wrench, and maybe the monkey wrench is your coward place, whatever. And if you're not opening doors to your different feeling centers, then you're walking around pretty numb and half alive. If you start experimenting with these feelings, this is how you know yourself. When Socrates or Jesus or Hiawatha said, know thyself, this is what they're talking about. And this is how you get powerful. It doesn't stop this exploratory mission on the inner life, the inner world. So I use the songs to show me the things that I hide from. I just want to say how remarkable she is as not only a musician and a writer and a vocalist and a performer, but also just like a teacher, Mm -hmm. right? I agree. From Spin, October 94. There have even been those who have wondered if the National Sex Abuse Hotline that Amos helped found, Rain, is some kind of marketing maneuver since it's funded by Atlantic Records. And she says, I get these guys who are suspicious from the get-go asking, why are you doing this? What are your motivations? And I'm like, how can I not do anything when I'm getting bags of mail from girls who are saying they can't go home because their fathers are abusing them? I've got to do something besides just say I'm sorry. And then these TV guys just ask you flat out, why don't you talk a little bit about your sexual assault? And you know they're just doing it so it can titillate their audience so some gross guy at home in his easy chair can satisfy his sick voyeurism. Mm. Amen. That pisses me off. Me too. And I also imagine every journalist wants to be the one that was able to pull some like new piece of information out of her. So they keep trying. Yeah. A couple more quotes and then we're going to bring in Shannon, our friend Shannon. Let's read this from the New York Post. This was on January 17th, 1997, right around the time she was doing her Live in New York special and partnering with Calvin Klein for Rain. And Lisa Robinson asked, how did this partnership with Calvin Klein come about? And Tori responded, Rain was in trouble and I just let people know that we existed. Calvin Klein called and said they wanted to be involved with Rain, but it wasn't as if I was knocking on their door saying, hi, my name is Tori. Can I have a couple million dollars? I really was worried Rain was going to close down, so I was going to do a concert on my own, but I didn't think anyone would come to the party. Originally, Atlantic Records and Warners kicked in a bit to get us going. The National Association of Recording Artists and Scientists stepped in and helped when times were bad, and MCI chose not to close us down. But nobody stepped to the table in a major way. When you're running a toll-free phone line, it doesn't just run on goodwill. We really needed more help. As a musician, how hard is it to get money for things? Usually people ask you to do benefits. Charity is a very difficult thing. You really can't go hat in hand to people, and it's not my way to ask for things like that. I just wanted to put calls out there, and if people responded because it struck a chord, then they'd know we existed. When we got the call from Calvin, I just thought they would want to contribute something, which we were grateful for. But when they said they wanted to do a year's campaign, I just had to sit down. I said, repeat that to me one more time. How does the 24-hour hotline work? 
It's like an emergency room. It's where you go to get references on where to rehabilitate. They have trained people who deal with people who call wanting legal advice. Like someone might call and say, I'm 13 years old and my mother beats me every day of my life. How can I get out? Or what are my legal rights? Do I need to have proof of my bruises or proof of my sexual abuse? Unless you know what you're talking about, you won't necessarily have the right answers. How do people react to your involvement with this? Well, when people go, Tori, this is so depressing, my response is, look, if it happens to you or your daughter, you'll shut up. Your whole life will change. You might be uncomfortable dealing with this, but if your daughter needs help, there's a place where people can go. At least they can advise your daughter or son where they need to go if they've had a problem that you can't deal with. You'd be surprised just how many parents just don't want to talk about this. Somebody said that Howard Stern said sarcastically that I was a real party. But you know, rape isn't about a party. If something like that happened to somebody he loved, he better hope I'm not about a party when that moment happens and they need help. I'm really doing this so that people can go to a party. I'm doing this so that people who feel that at 20 when their lives are over or they don't know how to have an intimate physical relationship that they can be beautiful people again. How disturbing is it to hear these stories over and over again from your fans at the shows? We've had kids who've come to the show and said that two of their friends just walked in front of a train because they couldn't face it anymore. Night after night you hear these stories and when you know that you can do something to at least put people who need information and understanding together with people who have it, how can you wake up with yourself in the morning if you don't do it? Here's a clip from her interview with... David Byrne on Sessions at West 54th. Wasted. Sh-wasted. Totally <laughs> wasted. I want to ask about uh, RAIN, the organization that you founded, right? Yeah, with other people. With some, some other people. What's the ongoing work? I mean, we know about benefit concerts and that kind of thing, but what's the ongoing work there? Well, what RAIN really is, is it's a group of people that make sure that the phone line is running. It's a 1-800 number, mm -hmm. and the number is 1-800-656-HOPE, and um, RAIN picks up the bills that people, when they call from anywhere in America to a rape crisis center. The rape crisis centers can't afford the collect calls, you know. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're funded, and they, they have to take care of their, you know, bills. And there are about 600 rape crisis centers, crisis centers now that the phone line um, takes the caller to a counselor at one of these places. And Rain is um, able to do that. And there are people, it works out of the DC Rape Crisis Center. That's where the hub of Rain is. Part of the DC Rape Crisis Center is Rain now. Does knowing that this, that uh, an ear, an ear, for the telephone, the other end of the telephone exists. Does that help people call and, and say what's happened to them? Well, I've been told we've now had over, we're about 225,000 calls now since 1994. That's a lot, quarter That's of a million people. That's the good news and the bad news. But I've had people come up to me and say that they really were helped by rain because it's not like just a friend who's sitting there going, yeah, yeah, you know, and kind of going like this mm -hmm. to watch the TV show and they've heard it enough and you feel like you're imposing. Those people at the other end of the phone line are really there to talk about that and um, to direct you. Some people need medical attention. Some people need legal advice. Some people need therapy. They really do. Some people are um, very ill, you know, very ill. This is from Dutch Magazine 1, March of 2000. 
Tori co-founded Rain, a helpline for victims of sexual abuse. Since the start, a quarter of a million women phoned. In interviews, she often mentions women have to fight like lions. What does she mean by this? Well, she says, when you're abused, there's a time to cry, to be looked after, and to stop the bleeding. But there will be a time that you have to look after yourself. I believe women have to get more powerful. They are always looking for the prince on the white horse or the dark prince who can lighten their dark sides. Excuse me, dark prince? By now, Tori sits at the tip of her chair. Society always allowed men to do what they wanted to do. Drink, fight, rape, screw. Enough room for the dark side. At the same time, women would wait frightened. When will I be raped, robbed, or abused? Some of them turn as hard as nails because of that fear. You can't reach them anymore. I was like that as well. But physically, I'm in reach, of course. I mean, that penis has to get in somewhere. Women shouldn't deny their dark side. Sometimes those demons are frightening, and sometimes they're beautiful. You'll have to approach them. Drink a glass of wine with them. Take them for a walk on the beach. Examine your yourself. When you'll think about yourself for 15 minutes a day, very honest and without a lot of criticism, you'll get to know your force. Every person is unique. You have to find and respect that unique part in yourself. You can't expect others to do the work for you. I believe a personality is like a labyrinth where you can make a wonderful journey and that journey can take a lifetime. Mm. With that being said and all of the quotes being complete, David, let's give ourselves a round of applause. <laughs> Woohoo, I'm high-fiving a million angels. Here's the Vitamin String Quartet with their cover of Me and a Gun, and we'll be right back to talk to our friend Shannon. never anticipated was that her own breakthrough would trigger the breakthroughs of so many others. We were getting hundreds of letters every week. What did the letters say? They're all different, but the threat is that um, there's so many people out there that have had some kind of sexual violation. began to discover that in the crowds waiting outside the concert halls were survivors of rape. People waiting as long as eight hours for a chance to whisper their story or pass her a letter. Tori never misses an opportunity to listen or share. 
Shannon, a 19-year-old college student, credits Tori Amos with helping her deal with her rape. I won't say that she saved my life, because I don't think she'd like that. But she definitely helped me to find the strength to save myself. On the line, we have good friend Shannon Lambert, who was featured on the 2020 profile of Tori Amos back in the late 90s. She's also the founder of Pandora's Project, an online forum for survivors of sexual assault, and she is also the recipient of the Women of Worth Award presented by L'Oreal. Hi, Shannon. Hi. It's good to talk with you. It's so good to talk to you. I haven't seen you since tour, tour 2017. Oh, God. I know, and I think that was when you stayed in my basement. I did. We all did. It was a great time. Thank you for that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about your discovery of Tori Amos, how you came to the music and how you came to the healing through the music. And if you could tell us a little of your story. Yeah, for sure. So when I was in, in high school and sort of struggling with some things, I did have a friend who gave me a, I think it was a cassette tape, and I want to say it was under the pink. And I put it on and I didn't like it and I moved on. But it always <laughs> kind of stayed, you know, it's yeah. not everybody's cup of tea. And I wasn't ready for her at that point. And then I went away to college. And I remember being at a Take Back the Night event that my college put on and hearing somebody sing Me and a Gun a cappella. And I didn't know what the song was, but I do know that it hit me really hard. That was a bit of a turning point there. And it was shortly thereafter that I started listening to Tori's music. And it just floored me because I felt like somebody finally understood like listening to little earthquakes for the first time was an absolute revelation and i mean that in both like the best and the most brutal way possible so then i started doing some research on tori amos and i found out that she had been involved in the founding of rain and rain was really the first place that i turned to when i was ready to start talking about things then I, i just felt this strong urge to tell my story but i didn't feel ready to do that publicly. So I had told a few friends that I decided to create a website. So I created this website based on Tori's lyrics. It was called Welcome to Barbados, and this was probably 1998. Mm. And that's when I first told my story. Shortly thereafter, I was contacted by somebody from 2020, and they were interested in doing a story about Tori and her impact on survivors, and would I be interested in learning more? So I stayed in contact with them, and eventually they decided they were moving forward with the interview. They flew me out to New York. I interviewed and shared my story in the most absurdly public way (laughs) imaginable at the time. Um, And I actually didn't know until we got out there that we would be meeting Tori. So they took us to the the Newark, New Jersey concert back in, was this 98? Mm Mm-hmm. So they took us to meet Tori backstage um, before her, her Newark show. And I had I had not really met her before. I had been in a meet and greet before um, when some really mean regulars sort of pushed me out of the front row. <laughs> They're awful, so those had, regulars, aren't they? <laughs> it's just awful. So I was able to, you know, pass a note to her and I got an autograph. But I mean, it's not like we were having a heart to heart conversation. Mm. But that absolutely did take place before that New York show. And I got to tell you, I have never experienced anything like that. I had not anticipated it. And when Tori told the cameras to leave, because only part of it was filmed, the conversation she had with us, she shared so much of herself and it was just empowering. It was wonderful. So then we went to the show and then I was anticipating that there would be a lot of people who would see this segment on 2020 and want to reach out. 
And I knew that there was no possible way I could respond to everybody's email, but I didn't want to leave anybody hanging. So I thought, let's just create this small little bulletin board. I mean, this is 98. This is when the internet was fresh. Mm -hmm. Let's create this little bulletin board where people can communicate. And it worked. It let people support each other. And so then it, it grew into this big organization that had thousands and thousands of members and a huge database of information so that people had a place to turn. And the goal was always to provide a place during those like initial raw periods where people needed the ability to share their story in an anonymous way with people who wouldn't judge them and who would understand um, who had been there. And so that was the goal is to help to create a stepping stone to where people could seek real life resources when they were ready to speak out with friends and family so that they they could sort of integrate their survivorhood with, with their whole selves. And it blossomed in a way that I, I didn't really dream that it would. At one point, we probably had 20,000 active members. It's wow. hugely and sadly a popular resource for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, my I loved that Tori was so supportive of it the whole time. So she was always really excited about it, referred people to it, um, always asked me how things were going when I saw her. So... That's sort of how the seed grew. Is Pandora's project still active? It is still active. Um, And it's really interesting because we're now in 2020, right? So it has been 20 years Mm -hmm. since this idea took off. And in those early stages, the, the world was a little bit different. And what I mean by that is there was very few places where you could go to seek help in an anonymous way and in an online way that felt somewhat safe. Somebody jokes that we were like, doing social networking before social networking was a thing. And that's kind of true. I don't think Facebook even existed when we started this resource. So it's still there and the resources are still there. But I think that a lot of the purpose that Pandora's project had has been sort of alleviated by our societal change toward hearing and empowering survivors. Yeah, so it's still there and the resources are still there, but I don't think it serves quite as an important purpose as it did when it was first founded. And I'm okay with that. I I think that's fantastic. I think that I I love that we're in a place where people can find resources elsewhere. I want to talk to you about that because the last time we interviewed you, when we did our first Mina Gun episode, uh, was prior to the Me Too movement. You talk about the societal shift where we are more able to hear stories and empower survivors and how that's definitely had a change on pandies.org. Is that emblematic of like a more open society is it really or what are your thoughts on that um i hope so you know back when i when i spoke out on 2020 that was an enormous step and i didn't i didn't know a single other survivor um other than the woman that i met when i was there who had really spoken out on a very public stage before it was still something that was treated so sensitively yeah and with a lot of sort of shame wrapped up in that bubble it was still one of those things that you kind of keep to yourself so i i mean i'll admit to you that i struggled greatly after that aired because i i felt that shame deep and so fast forward to 2017 i don't know if you watched me too unfold but that was an extraordinary day Mm -hmm. One person started, then it was like every time you refreshed Twitter or Facebook, people were sharing their stories Mm -hmm. and it was everywhere. And the stories ranged, which is one thing that I think is so important, too, is that, you know, this is something that Pandora has always tried to push, too, is that a violation is not always a stranger jumping out of a bush and, you know, raping you at gunpoint. 
violations range. They range from people inappropriately touching you, making negative comments, making you feel uncomfortable in a work situation. They're all over the place. So Me Too was phenomenal in that so many people were sharing all kinds of stories of what had happened to them, and people were taking it seriously. There was no shame. Nobody was questioning whether, you know, what somebody chose that led to a situation or a violation. It was pure acceptance. And people I, I never knew had had those experiences were sharing their stories. And I thought, this is where we needed to be. And it was the celebrities, and it was, you know, like high yeah. school teachers. It yeah. was everybody. So my hope is that that movement has helped push us toward greater acceptance of people when they do share their stories of violation or assault or harassment. So that it's not something that we say they should keep to themselves or deal with, with, you know, only in therapy, Mm -hmm. that it's something that we can hear and that you don't have to be under a cloak of anonymity in order to share it. Because by hearing it and seeing that outpouring of support and acceptance that you maybe feel like you are able to step into that and not hold that shame for yourself where you can't. Here's a question. I mean, this is a difficult question, but if you were a teenager today, do you think that you would be able to more openly deal with your situation or what happened to you? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah? Yes. And of course, I can't speak for everybody, but my husband is a high school teacher. And when he's teaching, um, so he teaches psychology sometimes, and sometimes he'll teach about depression, anxiety, suicide, those sorts of things. And he'll tell the students ahead of time, hey, I'm talking about this next week. If you're uncomfortable with it, let me know. We'll we'll have an alternative assignment for you so you don't have to come to class or whatever that day. He will have students come and tell their male high school teacher, listen, I was sexually assaulted last year. This is just not a subject that I can take right now. And that lures me. That never would have happened when I was in high school. That's great. Yes, I do think so. And I think the resources are different now. I think we're more open to talking about it. And part of it is just as a society, we're more open to talking about sex. And I don't want to equate sex with rape. They're very, very different. But part of the reason that rape has been so shoved under the rug is because it does have sex attached to it. Mm -hmm. And so as a society, we've become more open about talking about it. So I think that that has erased some of the shame from it. I know that there are still people who struggle and still feel like they can't speak due to family situations or or their own personal choices. That's why I'm glad that something like Rain still exists. And Rain has, for example, they even have online and text a support now yeah, too. So yeah. things have really moved with the time in that regard also. I think there's a beautiful poetry to you not being able to confide in the people close to you, but that you felt okay to confide in on almost on a world stage, even through Pandora, pandies.org, you know, feeling safe with strangers. And we pulled some quotes and we talked about this earlier where Tori said that she, you know, she felt safer talking about this with strangers than people that she knew. I think there's Mm -hmm. a beautiful poetry to that because at the time, 22 years ago, Pandies was the Me Too movement of its time. It was like, oh shit, there are people that have these stories that have this experience that I can rely on, that I can talk to. Knowing that it's 22 years later, how has your relationship with the song changed? over time and do you have a relationship with the song now when have i last listened to that song yeah a long time (laughs) (laughs) i listened to it last night and i'm telling you you know i have my own experience with that song and it was harrowing at the time and then in the intervening years Mm -hmm. i kind of put the song away and then last night as i'm preparing for this episode i just for the first time cried listening to that song in so long and like actually just absorbed it again. I put the song away and I may have mentioned this in our prior interview on the subject, but did you know that I've never heard it live? I did know that. 
that is one of very few songs that I, yep, I have never once heard it live. I was out of the country during the 2001 Strange Little Tour, where I believe she did it almost every night. Yeah. And then by some fluke, I didn't go to Chicago during the Infamous performance <laughs> by Kip. I bet Shaggy wishes he were you. <laughs> I know, right? The song that actually is more even impactful for me is, is Silence All These Years. It's a song that Tori has played for me on a couple of occasions, and that one still kind of hits me deep. Yeah. And maybe that's because the song is less raw than Me and a Gun. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I couldn't even answer that question because I couldn't tell you the last time I listened to the song. Wow. It's been years and years and years and years. I want to talk about this Take Back the Night event because that's really interesting. Last night when I was listening to different covers of Me and a Gun, it was actually not a Tori Amos cover that I hit on that made me weep, but it was this cover of this other young girl singing the song that just kind of really got to me. So I want to hear that experience of having someone else sing Tori's song to you. Yeah, so it was, I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was in this like dark, we called it the Cow Palace. It was this I went to school in a cow town, but we called it the cow palace. And it was like this little, this, it was a small auditorium and it was pitch black. And this young woman, she set a chair in the middle of the stage area with one spotlight on her. And I mean, there was no other light in it. And I just, it was insane. Wow. And she was a really good singer too. Wow. But yeah, that's literally the only time I've ever heard that song sung live. And it wasn't by Tori. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel now? As an adult woman with a career and a wonderful life, how do you feel about the young girl who went on 2020 and told her story? I think she's awesome. Yeah. I, I sometimes am just kind of astounded at the bravery of that choice. And it's much easier for me to say that when I think that this is somebody else, the way you pose yeah. the question. Yeah. Think of it as somebody else. It was an astonishingly brave choice. And I'm so appreciative of 2020 for not actually telling me that we would be going to a Tory show and meeting Tory. Because it meant that I made the choice without that. Yeah. It was, do I want to tell this story? And it wasn't clouded with, well, there's a quid pro quo here. I'll get something in exchange for it. Yeah. That wasn't there. It was just purely my choice. So I'm really, really grateful about that. So, I mean, I'm proud of the younger me for making the choice to share my story, knowing that it would help other people, and also understanding that it would come at some personal sacrifice because it did i'm not gonna lie about that it was it was a rough few months and and i'm i'm really proud of who i've become now i mean honestly i am grateful for the healing that i've done in the last 20 years being a survivor is is obviously part of who i am but it it does not define me at this point i'm at the point now where when I watched the Me Too movement unfold, for example, I didn't participate. I did that many, many years ago. It was time to sort of pass that torch to this next generation of survivors who can move forward in, in a new way. I think it's I think it's amazing. A pioneer, ladies and gentlemen, Shannon Lambert. You can still find her website, pandies.org, archived online, still there. You can still post to it. Shannon, you were one of our very first podcast guests, and we're so grateful to have you back for this episode. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad that you asked me. 5 a.m. Friday morning. Thursday night. Far from sleep. I'm still up and driving Can't go home, obviously So I'll just change direction Cause I'll soon know where I live And 
And I wanna live. Got a full tank, get some chips. It was me and a gun and a man on my back. And I say, Holy, holy, as he buttoned down his pants. You can laugh. It's kind of funny, things you think, times like these, like I haven't seen what it is, so I must get out of this. Yes, I wore a slinky red thing, does that mean I should spread for you? Your friends, your father, Mr. Ed. It was me and a gun and a man on my back. But I haven't seen Barbados, so I must get out of this. And I this means me and Jesus a few years back used to hang and he said it's your choice babe just remember I don't think you'll be back in three days time so you choose well Tell me why it's right Is it my right To be on my stomach Alfred Seville It was me And a gun And a man on my back Like I haven't Seen Barbados, so I must get out of this. And do you know Carolina, where the biscuits are soft and sweet? These things run through your head when there's a man on your back you're pushed flat on your stomach it's not a classic Cadillac it was me and a gun and a man on my back but I haven't seen Barbados so I must get out of this. I haven't seen Barbados. So I must get out of this.
That was a cover of Me and a Gun that we found on YouTube by a young girl who goes by the name Melanin on Fleek. Of course, we'll link to it in our show notes, songsoftoryamus.com, but I really found that very moving, David, and that's why we played it in full. When I was talking earlier about how I had this sudden emotional response to the song after so many years, it was because I heard her singing the song, and she's like 15 probably, but... It was really moving to me. Hmm. Should we move on to our live section? Yep, let's do it. The thing that's different about this live section is Tori has pretty much, for the most part, played this song of essentially the same way every time, and that's the point. It's an experience. It's a come-to-healing moment. It's never really changed or evolved or anything like that, so we don't have much to show for anything in the way of live section, but we do want to hit on some key moments in her career. Should we start with the music video? Yeah. I wrote this song after seeing the movie Thelma and Louise, which um, brought something back that happened to me quite a few years ago. It's called Me and a Gun. Five a.m. Friday morning, Thursday night, far from sleep. I'm still up and driving. Can't go home, this was released literally to MTV and VH1. So imagine seeing this. Do we consider this a music video in the way that we traditionally define a music video? I don't necessarily, but they did. They called it the official music video mm-hmm. and they released it to music channels, the music stations. Do you think they were trying to capitalize on the success of the Nothing Compares to You video where it's just one shot close up of her face, head? It's kind of similar. I mean, yeah, I definitely think that that's probably a key factor in like, okay, this is a really emotional song. Let's be honest and have this one long shot. Mm. Let's showcase the vocalist that way. And that's not the first time that I've heard, and I'm sure you as well have heard her compared to Sinead O'Connor, strangely. Do you remember when Trent Reznor said he'd heard of her, but someone had told him that she sounds like Sinead O'Connor, so he didn't ever play her because he fucking hates Sinead O'Connor? <laughs> they sound nothing alike. They sound nothing alike. And I found this really strange article online. I'm doing research into it where it says that they both appeared on each other's albums in 1994. And I'm like, wait, Tori didn't appear on The Downward Spiral. So now I've been listening to The Downward Spiral, like the background vocals, just to see if she is uncredited in that no. album. But I can't find her anywhere. I have never heard that before. That is misinformation. We, I know. We would know. This is Tori performing Me and a Gun from the Dina Petty Show in 1992. So I'll just... Change direction Cause they'll soon know where I live And I wanna live Got a full tank and some chips This is another promo performance from MTV Hour in 1992 as well. Of me and a gun and a man on my back and I sang holy holy as he buttoned down his pants you can laugh it's kind of funny things you think in times like these do you remember this performance from later with Jules Holland? I think it was the first time she was on Jules Holland in December 92. I'm not sure that I do, but she has a long history of great performances on that show. Like I haven't seen Bob 
So I must get out of this. Yes, I wore a slinky red thing. Does that mean I should spread for you, your friend, your father, Mr. Ed? The thing that was so gutsy about this time is that she was doing this song on television. Like, you, I don't think you would see that today. What do you think? I agree with that. Not only the subject matter, but the fact that it's a cappella. you know? That actually yeah. makes me want to ask you another follow-up question to a previous discussion on the show. Do you think that maybe the reason, one of the reasons that they chose this as a single is because they were so opposed to how much piano was on the album and this is actually the only song on the album with no piano? They were like, well, but it's just voice, but let's go with that as a single. No, I think they were really startled by it, is my guess. Okay. Like, I think they were genuinely like... <gasps> This will get attention. That's what the suits are in the business of doing, getting attention. They got mine. She performed it one more time on television in 1998 on The Roseanne Show. What an appearance. Are you on drugs now? I would hate to be asked that. I know. And then Roseanne keeps going and Tori's like, no, that's like Gerber baby food compared to this. <laughs> She's I talking know. about ayahuasca. <laughs> ayahuasca, yeah. <laughs> After you think you're having a real conversation with someone and they're like, are you stoned? Yeah. Um, no. They seem Thanks. to be with you going along for the journey, and then they're like, Are you high? Me and a gun and a man on my back, but I haven't seen Bombadians, so I must get out of that was our promo section of the show, and we're going to move into our live section official. It's impossible to gauge how many times she's performed this live. Impossible. We would have had to be there in 1992 collecting every set list, <laughs> which we should have been. Honestly, I regret it every day of my goddamn life. Seriously. But she performed it at every show in 92, every show in 94, every show in 96. Plus, there were things like where she was inducting Rain. She performed it when she won the DC Rape Crisis Honorary Award. She performed it then as well. It's just impossible to gauge how many times she's done it live so we're not even going to try we're just going to pinpoint key moments do you want to read this quote from the buffalo news to get us started david sure do i love news about buffaloes the meshing of her art and life is most apparent when she sings me and a gun on stage sometimes i have to detach myself to get through it sometimes people come up to me after a show and say how i distracted myself from the song and that might be the night it was hardest for me to sing it that might have been the night i really relived it then there are nights where i just have to sing it to get through it and people think i relived it but i didn't it affects people in different ways but one thing that song always does is come up and put its arms around me and say just let me do the job in 1992 she performed it at every show and there were like 147 shows so at least 147 times is my guess. Plus like all the times in 91, the pre-Little Earthquakes tour, you know, she was already playing it as of August 91. So the first time that we have on record a bootleg is December 12th, 1991 in Sunderland, England, at Tosca's. Roll it, Oliver. I don't know if, um, how many of you saw Thelma and Louise, but I saw that movie. Yeah. And um, after I saw it, brought something back happened to me a few years ago. And um, I was playing the Mean Fiddler up in Harleston. And I wrote this in the parking lot. And I have to sing it every time I'm playing because for some reason it's, I still have to get it out. 
Friday morning, Thursday night, far from sleep, I'm still up and driving, can't go home, happy asleep. She sounds so young. You know how she talks a lot about how the 14-year-old girl came backstage and didn't want to go home because she didn't want to confront her father and Tori basically said, okay, come with us, but like she couldn't take her across state lines or she couldn't kidnap her, and it eventually led to the founding of Rain. Mm-hmm. Well, in my research, because I'd listened to a lot of the Mina Guns, going through the circuit in England in April, she started talking about an Irish girl that she had met when she was in Ireland, which must have been on March 26, 1992. It was the only show she did in Ireland in 92. But there's no boot from that show, so you don't hear what she says during that show. But throughout England, she was talking about this 14-year-old girl and dedicating the song to her and this 14-year-old girl that they both could find healing. Mm. And so here's that from April 2nd, 1992. Here's a little bit of what she said before. This song I wrote in August after I saw Thelma and Louise. And I sing this every night. And I'm singing this particularly right now for a 14-year-old Irish girl. And I sing a song to free us from this. And so I believe that that's probably the little girl that she met that inspired Rain. Like maybe it was the first story that someone shared with her that it was really, that really affected her, you know? And of course, other people shared their stories after, but maybe that first one is what she kept with her. Mm. And that's so soon after the release of the album and the start of the tour, really, for someone to have connected with the song like that. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's possible there was more than one similar situation. Yeah, too. Of course. Of course. Sadly. So that's it for 92. In 1994, she performed the song at all the shows then, too, which was what, like 700 shows? I think 800? No. Something like that, right? You think she did 800 shows in one year? Wow, she is impressive. Yeah, there was always, there was always an evening show and always a breakfast show. There yeah. was a breakfast set. <laughs> yes, always. Tori's like Santa Claus. God. Like, how does she exactly. do it? She's always bringing songs to all the children of the world. Like, she's in <laughs> Africa. She's in England. She's in Ohio. How all is she the doing this? Good children of the world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did she really um, perform it at every show, even when there was a double header? Because usually, yeah. at least on mm-hmm. subsequent tours, if she did two shows in one night, she usually did it only at one of them. Every show, always followed by either Baker Baker or Winter, generally. Then towards the end of the tour, she opened it up. She would do Pretty Good Year, Icicle, Sunny When Sunny Gets Blue, Summertime sometimes. So we're not going to play any from 1994 because we have a couple that we want to play in 1996. This is... October 23rd, 1996, in Miami, she brought Beanie out on stage. I don't think Beanie sings with her, but she's still out on stage with her. No, her head's gorgeous. I thought I'd like that. 
here's November 9th, 1996. It's the first time I heard it. And you, you will not hear this on the bootleg. But from my vantage point in the back of the balcony for my very first show, all I heard was someone's alarm going off on their watch, David. It was me. Beep, beep. And a gun. Beep, beep. And a man. Beep, beep. On my back. Beep, beep. That's how, exactly how it was. It was horrifying. an unfortunate first meeting gun experience as well that's strange isn't it that is tell me there was some dude like up in the terrace at my first show who was making like weird catcalling noises and just like trying to distract her and it was dead silent there was just this dude and she didn't break she did not respond she just sort of you know do that did that thing she did where she slowed it down even more and went more into a whisper to try to control the situation let's play that see if we can hear it june 28 1996 Obviously, this song is always intense when performed live, but do you think the Dewdrop Inn performances were the most intense? Yeah, for sure. Because of the flat. Yes, that's when she started doing that, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And they were. it was very slowed down. I think the pacing of it was more akin to the album version on the first two tours, and Dewdrop Inn, she really slowed it down. So Here's an iconic performance from the Live in New York Rain Benefit Concert on January 23rd, 1997. Things go through your head when there's a man on humor. You push flat on your stomach. It's not a classic killer. In 1998, she performed it only seven times, and this is the first time she performed it that tour, August 8th, 1998, in D.C. <laughs> Just remember, I don't think 
In 1999, she performed it only one time, David, and that was at the solo show in London at the end of the year, and it was October 29th, 1999, and she opened the show with it, standing at a microphone. What freaks you out more, me and a gun as an opener or Tori standing at a mic? I think it's Tori singing at a mic is my answer. Really? Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen her perform, well, like as Pip, I guess, but no, she turns and plays, like, play the keyboard. I've never seen her stand and perform an entire song standing at a microphone i don't believe so it makes me uncomfortable when she's just standing there with a mic i don't know why like every time she came out to introduce the quartet on night of hunters it was like oh (laughs) get back behind the piano this is weird i don't think she knows what to do either she always kind of like wrings her hands i feel like opening with this song creates like a safe space from the beginning so i really actually didn't mind it as an opener especially because it had been a closer for the whole other tours like it had been towards the end for most of little earthquakes and all of under the pink and do drop in so to have it open a show just is like okay we're dealing with this now in the beginning and we're gonna spend this show together in a safe space tell me what's right isn't my right to be on my stomach me and I go strange in 2001 she performed it 54 times on that tour david golly and that would be the last tour she performs it at every show that mm-hmm. would, that's the last time she does it that often because she doesn't do it again she doesn't do it in 2002 she doesn't do it in 2003 scarlet's walk she doesn't do it in 2003 a lot of pianos and she finally does it one time in 2005 on the summer of sin in Istanbul on July 10th, 2005, which I can only assume was a request. And it reclaimed its setlist position from the Under the Pink tour, right? It was second to last always during the main set. In 2001? Yeah. Yes. Let's move on to 2007. Del Posse. Little known fact, Tori performed Mina Gun three times on this tour, twice a cappella and once with the band. I did not remember that. I just remember the one band performance, of course. I guess that overshadowed the two. <laughs> yeah, I think so. She And it's funny because she did it as Tori when she did it solo, a cappella. Right. It was as Tori. Yeah. And twice in September. And then in November, she's like, you know what? Pip is taking this song. And oh, how Shaggy screamed. Yes. We'll hear from Shaggy in a mo. Father, I am 
we have good friend Shaggy Jason. You may know Shaggy from years of touring and the Welcome to Sunny Florida DVD. This is his first appearance on our show, but I promise you, not the last. Hi, Shaggy. Hi, Shaggy. Oh, hello there. Hi, hi. To get this out of the way up front, because we've never talked to you on the show before, can we assume that your full name is Shargret? As Maggie is to Margaret. Shargret, yes. It's just an abbreviation. Perfect. It's not Shagatree. Oh, some serious Shagatree. Exactly. You're on the show today, Shaggy, to talk to us about Me and a Gun 2007 performance by Pip. You had a very strong emotional reaction to it. But first, I want to get some of the details since you were in the audience. Can you set the scene for us mm-hmm. a little, please? Yes. It was Chicago in the winter, so it was really windy and cold. And it was GA, so a lot of people had been waiting outside all day. So I was in the back of the pit area at the Vic. The Vic was amazing. I'd never been there before. And she hadn't done a GA show in so long, so a lot of people were excited about this show. When was the last GA show? I think it was 98, 99, Was it really that long before? I think so. It was a long time. And so, like, this is the first GA show in a really long time. So a lot of people were really hyped up. And they had been waiting all day to get in. And then when she came out as Pip, people were really excited because you knew kind of what you were getting in for, you know? 
like you were going to get cruel and bliss and teenage hustling. So you're going to get a very energetic show. That's pretty much how it was kind of set up prior to me and a gun. Once me and a gun began, however, that was a different story. Prior to me and a gun beginning, did anything strange happen? Did anybody come out from backstage or anything like that? I did not see that. I heard that afterwards that Allie Evans had been out and like filming something because something was going to happen. Of course, we're just like, okay, whatever, because like nothing ever really, you know, happens. <laughs> I mean, sure, you get like, well, no, I mean, you get like a song debut, but sometimes their idea of something happening is very different from our idea of something right. happening. And what more do you people want at a show other than a new song debut? What's supposed to happen? Exactly. So I think maybe we thought it was going to be like Heart of Gold or something that she hadn't, I don't know, something really rare, but at the same time, like, who knows? So I heard about Allie Evans being in the audience, and I think somebody else, I think it was um, her niece, I think Kelsey was also there filming. Like, they definitely wanted to record the moment that was going to happen. Walk us through the moment. What was the song before Mina Gunn? The Waitress. Waitress. So she played Waitress, and everyone thought that was kind of going to be the end, because historically with the Pip sets, that was the last song before the Professional Widow remix into Big Wheel. But then it's kept playing a song, and it was kind of moody and bassy, and we're like, oh, okay, what's this? And the intro was a pretty long intro. She's standing up, and she grabs the mic and goes, 5 a.m., and there's a pause. So it's like, wait, did I just hear that correctly? And then another 5 a.m. And it's like, oh, yes, I did hear that correctly. And then you're like, what is happening? And that's when everyone was kind of like, no, no, no. <laughs> what? Whoa, what? And then, you know, the actual song began. The auditorium was very quiet. I think no one knew how to take it just because it was so different, but it was so unique that you were just kind of, I think everyone was soaking it in. So there was uh, no real reaction yet. And then she reached in her piano and brought out a knife. And that's when people were like a little taken aback. You know, you saw some heads kind of go back like, oh, okay, this is different. Because we know 2007 was all about, like, props. Yeah. You know, she had the lamp for Isabel. Martini. Right? Martini for Santa. Exactly. So she had props. But the knife was a new thing. I thought that was actually really daring to have the knife, only because she has said in past interviews that her assault was with a knife and not an actual gun. Right. But in the song, she made it a gun. So I thought that was kind of an interesting twist on it, like actually kind of bringing a bit more reality to it. Mm-hmm. If that made sense. Mm-hmm. So it was still kind of like, okay, this is interesting. And then she threw the knife down and you literally heard a thud on the stage when she threw the knife down. And then she grabs the piano again and pulls out a gun. And that's when I'm like, okay, I don't know about this. Like this, this, this might've taken it a little too far. <laughs> I don't know. I've never had an experience with a gun except for this moment in my life. <laughs> and to this day, I still have never had an experience with a gun. Like, this is literally the only experience I've had with a gun. Like, someone literally pulling a gun out on me. So I didn't know how to take it, honestly, because she literally had the gun to her head at one point. Right. And so you were so taken aback by the first, like, three or four minutes of this that you didn't know what to expect. Right. I don't know how anybody else felt, but I was like, is she really going to blow her brains out right now? Or, like, what's happening? Only because I've seen so many of those videos on, you know, live TV where a reporter has done that. Yeah. Or someone has just done that on live TV, like, literally blown their brains out. And it's so shocking. And so you kind of thinking like, wait, what's going to happen from this? And so my mind was kind of thinking like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then the song ends where she literally whips the gun out to the crowd, which was also a shocking because Tori 
Maria almost just like pulled a gun out on me. Were you were you scared? I wasn't necessarily scared for myself. I was really confused because she's not known for her performance art. Right. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Were there any rumors ahead of time that this was going to happen? And I asked that because I feel like Tori herself and Tori's camp are notoriously lousy at keeping secrets. <laughs> the fact that they were able to keep the lid on that is pretty amazing. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if Smitty had wanted out the day before. So, like, anyone know where to get a prop gun in Chicago? No reason. No reason. <laughs> no, nobody knew ahead of time. In fact, the story was when she was on her way to the stage as Pip, she grabbed the knife from craft services. Wow. Like, so I don't even know if that was planned. The knife part might have just happened. David and I have discussed this a little bit. What do you think is the reason behind doing it? What is the why? David mentioned that maybe it was sort of a reclaiming or like a reenact, like, how did you phrase it, David? He said it was almost like the rape revenge yeah. subgenre of horror films where she was kind of exploring what it would have been like to turn the gun or the weapon on the attacker and what would have happened if things had ended differently. And she's sort of playing that fantasy out. Yeah, I absolutely see that, especially the way at one point when she had the knife, like she had it in a very phallic way, mm -hmm. um, as if mm. she were a man thrusting it. So I definitely see that. I really think it's interesting, too, because she invented the gun, right? We've talked about that it was a knife, and you said she had the knife pressed against her in a very phallic, assaulting way. Mm -hmm. But she invented the gun, and so she then took what she invented, which was this tool that she used to heal from this assault, right? She took the invention of the gun and turned it. If we looked at it as maybe not turning it on the audience, but turning it on the attacker, then it kind of came full circle in a way. And she didn't play that song for a long time after. Like, I was assuming that that was going to be the last performance of this song ever, right? Did you assume that? Yeah, I don't think she played it again until, what was it, 2011 in yeah. South Africa? Yeah. And she hasn't played it since South Africa, I yeah, think, too. So it's kind of, it was kind of almost a very final moment, like a final, this is what I'm saying on the piece. And I do think it kind of was the way she turned on the audience. It wasn't necessarily the audience she turned on. It was the attacker. Mm -hmm. So I understand that perspective. And the character of Pip being the only side of herself strong enough to do that. At the same time, being in the audience. Yeah, yeah. Like, and having, like, it's like a weird, I see both perspectives. So I can listen to the performance and appreciate what the band brought in but I can't watch the video because I don't necessarily like it. Yeah. So I think it's just a little too much. Is it at all possible that she's also addressing what we've talked about, Eve, as we've, as we've explored the song, the fact that it was never enough for the media or whoever, when they were asking questions about her experience, they wanted her to talk about it, go over it, relive it again and again. And she even said that at some point she thought people were getting off on it. Do you think she was pointing the gun at people who are wanting to be voyeurs to this experience and were kind of feeding on it? Is that at all <gasps> at play That's here? That's really interesting because it was such a shocking moment. It's kind of like, here, you want this too? Then have it. Mm -hmm. almost her assaulting us with it like it, it wasn't a fun mm -hmm. moment it wasn't something that we should be voyeurs about i do think that's an interesting take on it did anyone ask her about it the next day or at a subsequent meet and greet or were people kind of afraid to address it it was addressed backstage by people who went backstage and it was basically kind of cut off like if they have a problem with it it's on them yeah I, rem I recall but that being... Really abruptly. Yes, I recall that being Tori's sentiment because I do think that a lot of people that maybe held that song up for 
their story or their healing. I do remember a lot of people having a problem with it, quote unquote, and not confronting her about it, but really trying to like figure out why she did it that way. And she was very like, this is my yeah. art. This is what I'm doing. This is what I need to say. And yeah. Mm-hmm. The end. Period. Period. And what if you speak to the exception that people were taking to it? Well, it's the same thing like when people cover the song and people have a problem with it. It's like, this is her story. This is a very sacred telling of the story and no one can tell her story. You know how we everyone takes ownership of Tori? You know how like we as well as like every Tori fan takes ownership of Tori to the exclusion of everyone else? Like it's ours, including to the exclusion of Tori. Like that song is ours, Tori. Mm-hmm. Like you can't mess with it. I think that might explain why a little too. Yeah, I do think people take exception to that because mm-hmm. like you said, it is very kind of Tori song. It's almost sacrilegious to cover that in mm-hmm. a way. Like cover anything else. Right, exactly. I mean, again. And we played a cover in full earlier from a girl called Melanin on Fleek. And I heard this girl singing it earlier. And I'm just like, if this song helps you in your healing process, like amazing, you know, like thank God for the song. And why shouldn't you be able to sing it? That's kind of my thought now. Yeah, because I feel like if someone's going to sing that song, they're just, they're not going to sing it because, you know, they heard it on the radio and they're, oh, they really like it. Like it's going to mean something to them. Yeah, good point. I agree. And I think Tori herself would be very encouraging of that. I don't think she would have any hesitation supporting someone for covering it. So, like, what do we have to say about it? I think we can all just agree that we're lucky and glad that Santa didn't cover this song. Yes. Shaggy, you are a beacon of light. Thank you for being on our show for the very first time. I can't wait to have you on. I popped my cherry. (laughs) Um, You mean we did. On that note, you can find Shaggy Jason on the Welcome to Sunny Florida DVD. But if you don't have a DVD player handy, maybe go to Twitter where you can find him as Garmon Bozia or Instagram where you can find him as James Spader. Spoiler alert, he is not James Spader. (gasps) I'm not? No, sorry. Damn it. It's one of his dolls. Oh, good one. Thanks, Shaggy. Bye. Bye. She did not perform it in 2009, but she did perform it once in 2010 on July 18th in London. We're not going to play that. We're going to instead move to 2011 Night of Hunters. She did the song four times on that tour, November 12th, 13th, 14th, and 17th. Four shows in a row in South Africa. Never before on the tour and never after, just those four South African shows. So Mm -hmm. I think it has something to do with what's going on down there. It's a very violent country. I would think so. And she'd never performed in South Africa. Is that correct? So... Right. She did three times in Johannesburg and one time in Cape Town at that point. Mm -hmm. So that's where that came out. Yeah. Also, sadly, it's the last time she's ever performed it. November 17th, 2011. And here that is. Classic 
She didn't perform it in 2012, didn't perform it in 2014, did not perform it in 2017, did not perform it in the 2020, the tour that never happened. Mm. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's perhaps the worst thing about this pandemic. That's the real tragedy for sure. I've been saying it for months. David, can you imagine we're done? I cannot. Again, that's one of the songs that's been with us the longest and certainly with the longest history. One of the longest live performance histories, so hmm. Yeah, and one of the longest episodes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We, of course, would like to say thank you to Shay Stymack for helping us out with the show notes. We could not have done it without you, Shay. Thanks, Shay. If you like what we do, please head over to patreon.com slash songsofteramus and become a supporter today. We have many different perks at many different levels for you to enjoy. If you really like what we do, follow us on all our social. We have Instagram, POW. We have Twitter, POW. We also have Facebook for our Russian fans, POW. We're Songs of Tori Amos at all of them. Why aren't we on TikTok doing routines to, like, spark? <laughs> because old people shouldn't be on TikTok. And say you don't no, want anyone. it, say you don't want it, say you don't want it. Again and again and again and again and Circus. again and again and again and again. Can we do a mashup or just request a mashup next tour of Bang and She Bangs? No. I would. I love when you don't do even that. pretend to entertain my ideas for like one second. And you're just like, no. And it's not even an amused no. Like, no, no. You want just, her to no. do bang? You want her to do bang with Ricky Martin's She Bangs? I want her to do that more than I wanted her to do You Spin Me Right Round with Hyper Ballad Cloud on I My Tongue. That made, made no it. sense. I loved it. You I loved don't either. that. I loved it. Are you crazy? God, I, also loved I would in, love to be Tori room. for a day. Talk about being queen for a day. No matter what Tori does, I loved it. I loved it. I that's pre- not I true. I present an idea that's... to you. No. <laughs> no. But that's not true. I am not that kind of person. I do not love everything. I do not love everything. I know but you I... don't. I'm just making but this about me. that particular cover that you brought up, I love. Yes. You spin me right round, baby. Right round. Loved it. Like a record baby? Like a record baby. Like a record baby. Right round, round, round. Well, I'm excited to be nearing the end of Little Earthquakes. I'm shocked probably as you are, that we're this close to being done. Then I remember that we have 500 B-sides to get through, so... 18. There's 18. This is just like the appetizer course. This is just the trailers. The bread basket. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening, everybody, and we'll be back next time with Little Earthquakes. Bye. Play us out, Oliver, with the Boy Who Can remix of Up the Creek. Bye. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamus.com.